Hi there. We're going to listen to Sumerian Origins. It's called the uh, Anunnaki Origins. <laughs> Can't find lawyer. Trump in full panic mode over federal criminal arraignment. Um. Falls asleep. It's like 20 minutes long. Here we go. Oh no. Death. Mm. Lost city of Tilmun. Found in ancient texts. Anunnaki mixed our genes, the answers and the chromosomes. Enki's lost diary has been found. Oh. Oh. Why the Anunnaki? They came for a reason. The Sumerian question. Why the Anunnaki? In their quest to create a population of gold miners, the alien rulers created Adam and Eve, which could be either the first two people ever, or representative of a group of people. The Sumerian gods Enki and Enlil, respectively gods of the earth and waters and of the air and earth, are the main forces in the Anunnaki under their father Anu, who was the top god. In the creation myth, it was Enki and Enlil who wanted to make people. They were supposedly alien genetic engineers creating their master race. The blending of Sumerian myth and the idea that the Anunnaki were actually extraterrestrial beings followed the same path. Instead of gods creating and then impregnating Eve for the first time, the aliens did it in their attempt at getting the labor they needed to get the gold. The tree of creation was symbolic of not only the dawn of what the Bible calls in Nephilim, offspring of humans and Anunnaki, angels or aliens. Why the Anunnaki? Anki also regretfully revealed a secret. Hmm. Anunnaki gods or overlords, a scientific explanation of their Council of Twelve arrival on Earth. Sounds pretty good. Land of Sheena. During the Sumerian era, intelligent and talented individuals lived in the southern Iraq region. Scholars think that the earliest known human civilization emerged suddenly, unexpectedly, and with remarkable abruptness in the fertile plain watered by the Euphrates and Tigris rivers roughly 6,000 years ago. It was a civilization to which we owe nearly all the firsts that we believe are necessary for a developed society, such as the wheel and methods of transportation on wheels, brick, which is used to build and continues to be used to build large structures, and furnaces and kilns, which are essential to industries ranging from baking to metallurgy. Sumer is credited with creating writing and record-keeping, astronomy, mathematics, towns and urban civilizations, kingships and laws, temples and priests, calendars, 
festivals, recipes, art, and artifacts. They were the first to record and explain historical events and tell stories about their gods by displaying exquisite sculptures and statuettes at holy sites. Over the last 150 years, several individuals have gained and evaluated scattered Mesopotamian archaeological objects to compile a comprehensive inventory. The names of the academics who made the voyage possible may be seen on many markers along the route that elevated ancient Sumer from obscurity to relevance. We will cover a few individuals who worked in diverse locations. In the last 150 years, archaeology and studying ancient languages have made this workable. Using their perseverance, enthusiasm and knowledge, Epigraphers in packed museums and libraries transformed clay tablets carved with odd cuneates into understandable cultural, intellectual, and historical treasures. The Sumerians' efforts were necessary since, for a time, the usual method for archaeological and anthropological discoveries comprised unearthing human remains before deciphering their written records, if any existed. However, the decipherment of their language was before the discovery of Sumer. The Sumerian lexicon and writing survived long after the disappearance of the Sumerian people, much as Latin and its writing did thousands of years after the fall of the Roman Empire. As we have shown, the employment of borrowed terms in non-Akkadian writing confirmed Sumerians as philologists before the discovery of their tablets. Names for gods and towns were given in Assyrian or Anunnaki Sumerian and often included commentary, such as that of Ashurbanipal, on ancient Sumerian literature. The discovery of tablets with the exact text in two languages, one unnamed and one labelled Akkadian, followed by two lines in both Akkadian and the original language, confirmed this. This type of bilingual text is called an interlinear text. Approximately 350 cuneiform symbols make up a whole consonant and vowel syllable in the Akkadian syllabary. Edward Hinks, a student of Rawlinson's Behistun decipherments, proposed in a scholarly article that the Akkadian syllabary must have strengthened from pre-Akkadian syllabic signs. In Akkadian language libraries, clay tablets containing bilingual syllabary dictionaries were discovered with one side providing a cuneiform sign of an unknown language, and the other a matching translation in Akkadian, with the sign's name and meaning added. Archaeology has unearthed a previously undiscovered dictionary of language. Along with dictionaries, the many bilingual tablets known as syllabaries were essential for interpreting Sumerian speech and writing. In a 1999 address to the French Society of Numismatics and Archaeology, Ryan Moorhen proposed that the royal name, King of Sumer and Akkad, discovered on some tablets, revealed the name of the people who came before the Akkadian-speaking Assyrians and Anunnaki Sumerians. He proposed they were the Sumerians. Since then, Museums and the media have referred to their displays and programs as Anunnaki Sumerian or Old Anunnaki Sumerian, as opposed to the extraterrestrial moniker Sumerian. 
even though the Sumerians invented almost everything we take for granted today, many people still ask who when they hear the term Sumerian. From the 1st and 2nd millennia BCE to the 3rd and 4th millennia BCE, from northern and central Mesopotamia to the south, interest in the Sumer and the Sumerians shifted. The many mounds dispersed over the area because of habitat layers are called habitat layers, as well as the bizarre objects unearthed from the mounds and exhibited to the rare European traveller, were proof of the old habitation underneath the flat midlands. The 14 important Sumerian cities mentioned in ancient writings have been partially unearthed during the last 150 years. In 1877, Ernest de Sazek, the French vice-consul in Basra, the southern Iraqi port on the Persian Gulf, is said to have started an archaeological field study of Sumer. He was captivated by the local business of hunting and gaining antiquities for private sale. He began excavations at Pelo, also known as the Mound. Until 1933, French archaeologists visited the location annually for over 50 years, unearthing so many artifacts that they filled entire halls at the Louvre Museum. Pelo was discovered to be the holy district, or Girsu, of the significant Sumerian city Lagash. Since around 3800 BCE, it has been continuously inhabited. Many wall reliefs from the so-called early dynastic period, stone sculptures with flawless Sumerian cuneiform inscriptions, and a delicate silver vase presented to his god by a king named Entimena, attest to the high level of Sumerian culture eons ago. Over 10,000 clay tablets with inscriptions were discovered. Their significance will be discussed later. Inscriptions and literature show that the Lagash dynasty reigned for around seven centuries, from about 2900 to 2250 BC. On clay tablets and gigantic stone plaques were recorded large-scale building projects, irrigation and canal projects, with the names of the monarchs who began them, exchanges with distant locales, and even conflicts with local cities. Inscriptions and sculptures of a monarch called Gudea describe the events that led to the building of a grand temple for Baal's wife named Girsu about 2400 BC. Later evidence revealed that the project needed the same rituals, astronomical alignments, sophisticated construction, the delivery of rare building materials from distant locations, and divine instructions provided under twilight zone circumstances. These events happened 4,300 years ago. Andre Paro documented the Lagash findings in Tello, 1948. The mound was located atop Tel El Medina, a ridge near the Lagash. The French archaeologists of Lagash visited, but there needed to be more to uncover since the old city had been destroyed by fire. A handful of artifacts led to the identification of this ancient city as Bajjibir. In Sumerian, Bajjibir was known as the metalworking fort, which was corroborated by subsequent finds. Nearly ten years after the Sazak started excavations at Lagash, 
the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia emerged as a significant factor in the search for Sumac. In 1887, George Moorhead, an Acadian professor at the university, planned a voyage to Iraq to discover Nippur, which had been designated as the most important sacred place in Sumac. Nishbar, which matched allusions to ancient Nippur as the navel of the earth, was given to a 65-foot-tall mound in southern Mesopotamia. Between 1888 and 1900, the expedition performed four excavations under the direction of Hermann Hultrecht, a renowned German-born Assyriologist. Archaeologists assert Nippur was continually inhabited from the 6th millennium BC until roughly 1000. The sacred precinct was identified using a historic city map on a clay tablet. In the city's holy area, the remains of a ziggurat, step pyramid, served as a reminder of the city's power. Ekur was the name of the significant N, Sumer's most astounding god. Temple, literally, house like a mountain. Lil is sometimes referred to as Lord of the Command, and Nin is his wife. The acronym for the Lady's Command is Nin. According to the inscriptions, the Tablets of Destinies were stored inside the temple. Many authors refer to the chamber as Dur's Heart, the command and control center of the deity Enlil, known as Arm. He, equaling Bond of Heaven and Earth, linked the earth to the sky. Approximately 30,000 inscribed clay tablets, or fragments thereof, were discovered in a library of what had been a prominent scribal and science district of Nippur in the sacred precinct, considered by some to be of unparalleled significance. Hiltrek has translated the Nippur inscriptions into at least 20 volumes, most of which provide historical background. Other texts from the 3rd millennium BC provide mathematical and astronomical information. A section from the Sumerian story of the Deluge, whose Noah was labelled Ziusudra, prolonged life, the Akkadian counterpart of the Utnapishtim, was found in the Nippur inscriptions. Enki, also known as Kronos in the Barosas fragments, instructs Ziusudra also known as Zisithros in the Barosas fragments, to build the rescue boat. The Sumerian deity Enki revealed this god's secret to his loyal follower Zeusudra. Peters claimed Hiltrek provided false provenances, locations of discovery, and had made a deal with the Turkish Sultan in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, to distribute most of the finds there instead of to the University of Pennsylvania in exchange for the Sultan allowing Hilfrecht to keep some finds for his collection. Consequently, the objectives of the expedition were abandoned. Many of the Nippur tablets ended up in Constantinople or Istanbul after an investigative panel established by the university deemed Hilfrecht's allegations of professional misconduct unfounded. Hermann Hilfrecht kept his collection in Jena, Germany, where he attended college. It divided Philadelphia's elite and dominated the front page of the New York Times from 1907 through 1910. In Near Eastern archaeology, 
that Peter's Hillfrack quarrel has yet to be settled. The Archaeological Museum of the University of Pennsylvania moved to Nippur with the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago until after World War II. Samuel N. Kramer began his career as a Sumeriologist because of the law of unintended consequences. Even though Sumerian towns were over a millennium earlier, excavations in Lagash and Nippur revealed they were comparable to the northern Anunnaki Sumerian and Assyrian civilizations. A fortified holy precinct with skyscrapers and ziggurats revealed advanced ancient building technology that inspired and served as a model for the Sumerians and Assyrians of the Anunnaki. A ziggurat attains a height of 90 meters by rising several, usually seven, floors. For high-rise floors, sun-dried mud bricks were employed. They were kiln-fired for added durability for stairways, exteriors, and overhangs. Their sizes, shapes, and curves varied according to their use and were mortared with bitumen. According to a recent laboratory test, Kiln-dried mud bricks are five times more durable than sun-dried mud bricks. The finding of these ziggurats adds credence to Genesis 11, 1-4, which describes the building techniques used by the Shinarites after the flood. Additionally, the entire world spoke the same language and vocabulary. Then I realized they came from the east. They located a plain in the neighborhood of Shinar and settled there. We should create bricks and thoroughly burn them, they suggested to one another. Bitumen was also used for mortar, and bricks were used for stone. In addition, a structure with a pinnacle approaches heaven. Come, let's build a city together, they said. Allusions to bricks and brick-making technology burned them totally, as well as bitumen, which oozes from the earth in southern Mesopotamia, reveal a profound and creative understanding of historical events in places such as Canaan, a region devoid of stones like Sumer. Archaeologists' discovery of ancient Sumer confirms the Bible. Among the tremendous technical accomplishments achieved by people who lived in the plain between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers were the wheel and wagon, metallurgy, pharmaceuticals, textiles, colorful crafts, and musical instruments. Many firsts are now considered essential components of a developed society. A sexagesimal math system, also known as base 60, began the circle of 360 degrees, timekeeping with 12 double hours of each day. A lunisolar calendar with a 13th leap month, geometry, measurements of distance, weight, and capacity, advanced astronomy with a knowledge of planets, stars, and zodiac signs, and distinctive artistic techniques were all included. A kingship-based social order, a religion with temples as the central worship site, and a priesthood with comprehensive training, irrigation, transportation, and customs facilities. Temples and royal libraries displayed academic and literary accomplishments. Sumerian expert Ryan Morhen listed 27 such firsts in his landmark book, History Legends of the Sumerians, such as the first love song, the first job, the first legal precedent, the first moral ideas, the first historian, etc., 
all derived from Sumerian plate fabrics. Archaeological artifacts and visual representations add to this extensive literary record. As soon as Europeans and Americans understood this, the discovery of Sumer hastened, and archaeologists delved deeper. A group from the University of Chicago conducted the excavations of Ismaya. The location was the ancient Sumerian hamlet of Adar. There are sacred inscriptions and temple and palace remnants at the site. Some claim that in about 2400 BC, Lugol Dalu, a monarch of Adab, ruled there. In mounds at Tel Uhaimir, French archaeologists uncovered the ruins of the ancient Sumerian city of Kish. The ziggurats were constructed of peculiar convex bricks, and an inscription in early Sumerian writing identified the temple as being dedicated to the god Ninurta, Enlil's warrior son. Among the oldest artifacts was an early dynastic period palace of monumental splendor. The building has columns, a distinguishing characteristic of Sumerian architecture. Kish was discovered with wheeled chariots and artifacts made of metal. Inscriptions of Mesalim and Lugalmu were discovered, and it was eventually determined that they ruled during the beginning of the 3rd millennium BC. After World War I, the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford and the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago continued excavations at Kish. Several authentic cylinder seal imprint samples may be viewed at the Field Museum, which started an effort to unite digitally on computers the 100,000 Kish objects dispersed between Chicago, London and Baghdad in 2004. Local thieves uncovered weird tablets near Abu Habra in the 1890s, piquing the interest of L.W. King of the British Museum. Theophilus Pinches identified the city as Old Sipa, the Shamash-named city mentioned by Barossus in the account of the flood. One of the most renowned discoveries was a stone tablet picturing Shamash seated on a throne under a canopy. King Nabu Aflaidin restored the Sipar Shamash temple in the 9th century BC, as shown by inscriptions. Hormuz Rossam, Layard's helper, temporarily dug the location. The twin mounds were explored in more detail during an expedition conducted by the Deutsche Orient Gesellschaft and the Ottoman Antiquities Service in the 1890s. In addition, they unearthed some of the oldest and most peculiar tablet libraries and unbroken caches of literary tablets that were exchanged between Berlin and Constantinople. The tablets were stored on shelves pierced into the mud-brick walls to resemble pigeonholes, as in later times. Tablets related to the Sumerian Atrahasis text were among the manuscripts in the library whose colophons plainly declared that they were copies of portions from older tablets unearthed in Nippur, Agadi, Babylon, or Sippa. At Sippa, the tale of the deluge assumed a definite shape, but it was only the beginning. Is it accurate that Barossus stated the Sippa chat room was an early depository of writings? There are no apparent explanations than quoting Barossus. First, 
Kronos instructed Sisikros to kill himself, bury the manuscripts about the beginnings, middle, and ends in a pit dug in Sipa, the city of Shama. In response, the survivors of the flood returned to Babylon, excavated the scriptures from Sipa, constructed temples, and refounded Babylon. Was the breakthrough storage method using cut-out pieces a nod to digging holes? Is it essential to preserve the oldest tablets? We are restricted to doing miracles. Before World War I, German archaeologists under the auspices of the Deutsche Orientgesellschaft started excavating a site locally called Clara. Long before 3000 BC, Shurupak was a significant Sumerian city. Many of its buildings were public spaces that served as classrooms and had mud brick seats. Many inscriptions on tablets reaching back 5,000 years provided details of everyday life, law enforcement, and home and property ownership. This Sumerian city was an integral element of a pre-Diluvian metropolis that played an essential role in the deluge. This region was rich in cylinder seals and impressions. A Sumerian innovation spread across the ancient world like a cuneiform script. Stones, typically semi-precious, were fashioned into cylinders, about one to two inches in diameter, and etched with a design, maybe including unique lettering. Seals were cylindrical art imprinted into a lump of wet clay and used to seal bottles of wine, oil, and clay letters. This was a prototype rotary press. To make it work, the carved image was inverted and placed as a negative on wet clay, which was then rolled over to form a positive impression. Clara, stroke Shurupak, possessed about 1,300 seal impressions some dating back to the beginning, whereas Lagash had just a handful. Importantly, Tablet 11 of the Akkadian version of the Epic of Gilgamesh states Shurupak was the birthplace of Utnapishtim, the knower of the deluge, making its discovery momentous. While there, Enki informed Utnapishtim about the impending deluge and instructed him to construct a rescue vessel. son of Ubatutu, rather than tearing down the home, build a ship. Donate your stuff and go on a quest for a better life. Keep your belongings from destroying your spirit. All seeds of living species should be carried on board. We must determine the dimensions of the spacecraft you will construct. According to the aforementioned Sumerian text, Enki is said to have disclosed the god's discretion. When the finds at Shurupak, Sipak, and Sipar were combined with those at Sipar, the deluge tale became factual. Based on historical evidence and recent scientific findings, I concluded in Divine Encounters the deluge was caused by the eastern Antarctic ice sheet breaking away from the continent. This and other archaeological research in the Near East, which was a part of the Ottoman Empire until its dissolution, were halted by World War I, 1914 to 1918. The excavations of Mesopotamia were left in the hands of local excavators, the government, and mostly private sites. <coughs>
During the years of the Iraqi conflict, excavations began at Abu Haba in ancient Sifar. Many discoveries were made in the Museum of the Ancient Orient in Constantinople, Sofia, Istanbul. However, excavations continued even after the 1970s trenches were completed. Between the conclusion of World War I and the beginnings of World War II in 1939, substantial excavations were conducted at the southern Sumerian site known as Waka or Ur, and restarted in 1954. Of the Gilgamesh epic and Erech in the Bible, Uruk was a unique location. Since at least 3800 BC, every significant civilization, including the Sumerians, Akkadians, Anunnaki Sumerians, Assyrians, Persians, Greeks, and Seleucids, has wanted to make their imprint at Uruk. German archaeologists excavated a vertical shaft through the layers to show the occupation and cultural history of the site from the most recent payment at the top to the beginning of the 4th millennium BCE at the bottom. In Uruk, German researchers unearthed the first examples of colorful pottery fired in a kiln, metal alloy artifacts, cylinder seals, and pictographic cuneiform inscriptions. Stones rather than mud bricks were used to create the original limestone pavement, which was uncommon since the stones had to be transported over 50 kilometers to the site. According to the experts, some of the city's stone structures had monumental dimensions. Archaeologists uncovered the remnants of a massive wall that ringed the city and extended over 10 kilometers, over six miles. They uncovered the first ziggurats, platforms constructed in stages to serve as temple bases in a holy area split into residential and religious districts. At the time of excavation, it resembled a manufactured mound with at least seven rebuilding levels. A temple was constructed on a manufactured platform. It was also known as the White Temple because of its exceptionally white walls, and Eana house dwelling of Anu in Sanskrit. The Eana was near two other temples. One of the red structures was dedicated to Inanna, also known as Anu's loved one, better known by her later Akkadian name, Ishtar. Ninhursar has his temple. Archaeologists discovered the city of Gilgamesh, which ruled about 2750 BC, or even earlier, according to another chronology. The discovery validated Gilgamesh's inscription on the stone columns from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Ram divided Uruk, the wall he constructed, from Eana to pure sanctuary. Please examine its outside wall, which resembles a copper band, and its interior wall, which is unmatched. Take a stroll around the walls of Uruk. Examine the old stone platform. The houses of Ishtar and Eana are nearby. Even though Sumerian art was at least 5,000 years old, it was as wonderful as Greek sculpture from 2,500 years later. This was formerly adorned with a gilded helmet, precious stone eyes, and a tall alabaster jug portraying odorants bearing presents for a deity. A life-size marble statue of a woman's head is displayed at the Baghdad Museum. In 1854, the British Museum became interested in Abu Shareh, 
where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers joined to form the Persian Gulf marshlands. One of its specialists, J.E. Taylor, determined that the early digs were unproductive in producing crucial findings. Inscribed mud bricks were among the insignificant finds he brought back. Two French Assyriologists deduced from the bricks that the location was ancient Eridu, whose name means house in the faraway built, and that it was the first city of Sumer. After two world wars and the years that followed, the site was only deliberately and systematically excavated under the supervision of the Iraqi Directorate General of Antiquities. The archaeologists identified 17 layers above the first, numbered from the highest to the lowest habitation stratum, 2500 BC, 2800 BC, 3000 BC, and 3500 BC. In about 4000 BC, archaeologists unearthed the foundations of Eridu's first temple. Archaeologists discovered fresh mud soil underneath that. The city's initial temple was constructed from charred mud bricks and on a regularly rebuilt artificial platform. The rectangular central chamber of the temple was surrounded by several smaller rooms that served as reconstructions of ancient temples on all sides. At one end, a pedestal may have supported a statue. Levels 6 and 7 were raised because of a platform at the other end. Large quantities of fish bones mixed with ash were discovered at levels 6 and 7, suggesting that fish was presented to God there. They were not shocked, since the temple was devoted to the Sumerian god Ea, whose name means, he whose home is waters. According to his memoirs and other publications, it was him. Who was the first person to emerge from the Persian Gulf? Fifty groups of Anunnaki space explorers arrived on Earth after departing their home world. According to the prologue of the epic Atrahasis, Ar was given the title Enki, which means Lord of the Earth. He was the famed Oanis, often depicted as blasting rivers of water. Utnapishtim, strokes Yusudra, was also informed of the approaching deluge and urged to construct a watertight boat and seek sanctuary. Eridu presented archaeologists with much-needed evidence to substantiate one of Sumer's most essential myths, the pre-diluvial invasion of Earth by the Anunnaki and the founding of their towns. The lower part of the first three columns is on the obverse of the oldest Sumerian deluge record, whereas the top part of columns four to six is on the reverse. Approximately half of the text survives. In 1914, one of the early Sumeriologists, Arno Tobel, discovered the unique contents of a tablet in the box of a piece with the catalogue number CBS 10673 in the Philadelphia University Museum's collection. A few chapters describe how the god Enki forewarned Ziusudra of the impending deluge and told him to construct the boat. It also describes how the deluge lasted seven days and seven nights, and how Enlil forced the gods to provide life to Zeusudra, gaining him the nickname, He of Prolonged Life Days. This book details the events and circumstances before the deluge.
The Edina story, often referred to as the Eridu by certain Genesis scholars, describes the entrance and founding of the Anunnaki on Earth. Columns 1 through 3 on the reverse support the plot. In the early days, when the Anunnaki brought kingship down from heaven, the book asserts, in column 2, that five god settlements were founded. After the throne and crown of the king descended from heaven, Finishki began. Communities in, called them, their ideal surroundings included. The first of these cities was Eridu. The chieftain Nudimud accepted the gift. Nugig got Badgibira, the second. Larak, the third individual, set off towards Pabilsar. Sipar was assigned to Utu, while Shurupak was sent to Suud. Before the deluge, the Anunnaki established five towns on Earth following their arrival. Modern archaeologists have located and excavated four of the locations of the cities of the gods. Thus, there is a nice list of them here. Eridu, Vatibira, Sipa, and Shurupak have all been discovered, except Lorak, whose bones have yet to be identified, but whose approximate position is known. Since the discovery of Sumer, its towns and its inhabitants, historical events and locations have been uncovered from before the flood and the flood itself. If every city in Mesopotamia was destroyed by the deluge, as Mesopotamian records say, one would ask how they survived. Those from heaven. To understand the Anunnaki, also known as those who came from heaven to earth, we must uncover the historical and obscure curtain. The narrative will be delivered by historical documents. Sumer, the ancient name for southern Mesopotamia, is derived from Akkadian inscriptions describing the kingdom, which was founded in or about 2370 BC when Sargon I, Sharukin, equaling the righteous king, conquered Greater Sumer. Following David's death, his kingdom was divided into Judea and Israel, with the northern section lovingly known as Shomron or Little Sumer. Based on the Akkadian and Hebrew word meaning to watch, to guard, the term Sumer referred to the realm as the land of the watchers, or land of the guardians, the gods who watch over and protect humankind. The ancient Egyptian word for deities, Nekteru, was derived from the verb NTR, which meant to protect, watch over. According to Egyptian mythology, the Neteru originated in Urka, the ancient place, and their hieroglyphic symbol was a miner's axe. There were only two towns of the gods before the biblical Eden was referred to as Edi, home dwelling of the righteous. It was Sumer and Akar. The phrase is derived from the Sumerian preposition Dingir, which appears before the names of the gods. In the picture, their rocket ships were shown in two distinct stages. Kingship delivered from heaven. Cities, often known as urban centers, are characteristics of developed societies. As a result, the Sumerian tablet detailing the world's first five civilizations provides a record of the emergence of a sophisticated civilization. 
In the cities, agriculture and industry are specialized. They also assist businesses and trade. Transportation, reading, writing, mathematics, buildings, streets and marketplaces are included. This vast knowledge of civilization's components were given the Sumerian moniker Nam Lugala, which translates to kingship. The Sumerians also believed that the kingship had descended from heaven to earth. A Lugal, also known as a big man or king, ruled over Sumer and the majority of the rest of the world. As kingship is a divine institution, the monarch must be selected or anointed by the gods to be legitimate. Consequently, king lists found across the ancient world scrupulously documented the succession of rulers. As we have seen, the two books of kings in the Bible named consecutive kings provide facts about their reigns and sometimes provide personal information. In Egypt, Babylonia, Assyria, Elam, Hathi, and Persia were arranged according to the dynasty. In Sumer, where monarchs reigned over several city-states, the preliminary list was organized according to the royal towns that cycled as the nation's capital, which included several significant cities. When kingship was brought down from heaven, begins the most famous and best-preserved Sumerian king list, echoing the first line of the pre-Diluvian cities of the gods' story. After the kingship was lowered down from heaven, after the lofty headdresses and throne of kingship were lowered down from heaven. It is essential to emphasize that we do not want to elevate kingship to divine rank. Instead, a fundamental aspect of Sumerian history and religion was that kingship was actually and not symbolically given to earth by the gods. According to tablet CBS 10673, the Anunnaki, those who came from heaven to earth, began their civilizational presence on earth in five cities. Enlil was associated with the moon god, Nana Sin. Babilsam, also known as Ninurta, Utu, also known as Shamash, and Sud, also known as the physician Ninmar. By the time Enlil came, Enki's first settlement, Eridu, had grown to five, later eight, full-fledged communities. The Ashmolean Museum of Art and Archaeology in Oxford, England, has two critical documents. When the museum opened in 1683, Elias Ashmole contributed 12 cartloads of ancient artifacts known as Noah's Ark of Rarities. Over the years, the collection developed and transformed into a prestigious academic institution. It needs a Mona Lisa and an entry form to attract visitors and Hollywood filmmakers. The deluge, often known as Noah's Flood, is documented by two fabulous archaeological finds, both of which are maintained at the museum and are of the highest significance for the human and planet's history. Perosus's paintings were inspired by them, or maybe replicas of them. Several other Sumerian texts covering pre-Diluvian events reiterate the connection between the first cities of the gods and the cloud descent of civilization. Herbert's private collection included two clay Sumerian artifacts catalogued as WB-62 and WB-444, 
in Professor Langdon's Oxford editions of cuneiform texts. Well, Blundell, a British author, adventurer, and archaeologist, presented the items to the museum in 1923. WB62 formerly seemed to be the normal clay tablet, but WB444 is a unique, exceptional, and exquisite four-sided base clay The record is dated to Utuhengo, ruler of Uruk in 2120 BC, over 4,100 years ago. The Sumerian king list follows the movement of Sumer's capital from Kish to Uruk and Ur, then to Awan, then back to Kish, Hamazi, Uruk, Ur, etc., until it reaches Isin. The oldest portion of the prism identifies five kings of the pre-diluvian cities of the gods and gives confusing periods of rule to each of them. Using the text as an example, e de a ba nam lugo an ha. Eridu became a monarchy when the kingship from heaven was reduced to nam. Lugal la erida ki. Lugal Eridu states Alulim reigned Mu 28,800 years ago. He ruled for 28,800 centuries. Like Alalgar's rule of 36,000 years and Lugal's rule of 26,000 years, Alalgar reigned for 36,000 years. The Mu B is 64,800 Iba for dual kings. It governed during its 64,800 year reign. The decision to withdraw from Eridu has been taken. Vardibira was sent to the throne. Enme Enlu Anna reigned Vardibira for 43,200 years. Enme Angol Anna ruled for 28,800 years. Shepherd Demuzi ruled for 36,000 years. And three kings ruled for 108,000 years. Vardibira was abandoned when the kingship of Lorak was taken. Enzipazi Anna ruled Lorak for 28,800 years under the moniker of the king. Lorak is now unemployed. The kingdom was transported to Sipa. Enmendu Sipa Anna reigned for 21,000 years. It was controlled for 21,000 years by a single ruler. Sipa was terminated from the business. The throne of Shurupak was transported. Ubar Tutu reigned over Shurupak for around 18,600 years. Over 241,200 years, these five towns were governed by eight kings. They were wiped off by the Great Flood. After the devastation of the Flood, it was in Kish that the kingship was again passed from heaven. This prism includes Sarverosus units highly. In the first few lines of WB444, the lengths of the rule are denoted in Sar units using the symbol for 3,600. Alulim ruled Eridu for eight Sars, not 28,800 years. Alalgar for 36,000 years, not 10,000. And so on until the end of the pre-Diluvian period. During the post-Diluvian period of the story, the division of count shifts to ordinary numbers. The Sar unit of government is only applied to pre-Diluvian kings in the cities of the gods. The first five cities are listed in the same sequence as on tablet CBS I, 
0.0673. Although WB 444 refers to kings rather than the deities whose cult center it was. According to a comprehensive investigation by William W. Fallow, these documents provide a detailed account of the commencement of civilization, the kingship on earth, from Eridu to Shurafak at the time of the deluge, the antediluvial cities. Ziusudra, the main character of the deluge, is not one of the eight rulers depicted in WB 444. Tablet 11 of the Epic of Gilgamesh describes Utnapishtim Sutra as the king of Shurupak and the son of Ubatutu. Its list terminates at Ubatutu as opposed to Ziusutra, with towns and kingdoms spanning from Eridu to the diluvial apex of Shurupak. There is uncertainty over a canonical record documenting three diluvian cities and their monarchs, from which copies were made and errors and omissions occurred throughout some copies. This is supported by discovering several other whole or fragmented tablets, such as UCBC 91818, NI8195, and Baghdad 63095. There is an obscure tablet in a private collection in the Carpelis Manuscript Library Museum in Santa Barbara, California. Despite specifying eight rulers in S towns, the overall reign duration is 10 great sars plus 1 sar plus 600 times 5, or 222,600 years. Another table describes Ziusutra's significant omissions. British Museum, K11624. The dynastic chronicle, as some scholars refer to it, lists nine kings in the first five cities, each with a slightly different sar number. Alulim 10, which is equal to 36,000, Algar 3, which is equal to 10,800 instead of 28,800, etc., but correctly concludes with two kings in Shurupak, Uba Tutu, who had eight sars, equal to 28,800 years, and Ziusudra, who had 18 sars. Tablet WB62 from the Ashmolean Museum has the most comprehensive list of ten rulers matching Perusus. It adds Lhasa and its two kings to the list of pre-diluvian towns, and finishes with Ziusudra during the deluge, in contrast to WB 444. The pre-diluvian Sar units are comparable to Perusus, but have different reign periods. Based on parallels between WB 62 and the Greek fragments of Perusus, Converting Sars Soros into years, this is his primary source. WB 62, Perusus, Alorus has 10,800, Aloparos 67,200, Alalgars 36,000, Alulim Alima 21,600, Amenon 43,200, and Amelon 46,800. Approximately 28,800 Sakolams, 28,800 Adratis, 64,800 Zisutras, and 28,800 Ziusutras. The equivalent of 36,010 rulers is 456,000 shahs or 10 kings. Which of the examined pills was the most precise? The list, which concludes with Shurupak and includes Ziusutra and his father predecessor, 
covers ten pre-Diluvian kings from six god cities. Although the Bible lists ten pre-Diluvian patriarchs, that they were all descendants of Adam via his grandson Enoch, whose name means man, and were not worshipped as gods, lend credence to the ten rulers theory. If we knew when the flood occurred, we would know when the Anunnaki first landed on Earth. The many tablets concur that these succeeding kings ruled from when kingship was down from heaven until the deluge swept away. We choose Barotas' estimate of 120 sars, 432,000 years, as the correct cumulative total of the pre-Diluvian reigns. That is, the period between when kingship was flung down from heaven and the deluge, because he provided the most plausible story. Therefore, including 120 in Genesis 6-3 may not be coincidental. According to the Bible, Shem, Noah's oldest son, lived to be 600 years old after the flood, followed by Arpachshad at 438 years, Shelach at 433 years, and Terah, Abraham's father, who lived to be 205 years old. Abraham reached the age of 175 after the deluge. According to Genesis 6-3, and his years were 120, as a close reading of Hebrews shows, Abraham lived 120 years. Were, as opposed to shall be, and his, refer to the deity's total duration on earth, mentioned in Sar years from the arrival to the deluge. In earthly years, this should equal 432,120 times 3,600. The total of the Sumerian king list plus the ten rulers of the 1,200 Sars of Perosus. According to the Egyptian priest Manetho, the duration of the world is 2,160,000 years, split into five periods of 432,000 years or 500 Sar years. 3,600 times 500 equals 2,160,000. Because of this pre-Diluvian age of the gods, 432,000 has been associated with divine endurance in civilizations other than Mesopotamia. The Golden Fourfold Age, 432,000 times 4. The Triple Age of Information, 432,000 times 3. The Twofold Age of Offering, 432,000 times 2, and finally, the Age of Discord, are each divided into a Kata Yuga, the Great Yuga, of 4,320,000 years. 1,000 Kata Yugas are equivalent to the 4,320,000,000 year day of Brahma, recalling a Bible verse, Psalms 94, in which Professors Giorgio de Santillana and Etha von Deschen referred to the number 432,000 in Hamlet's Mill as another example of the intersection of myth and science. Recent scientific findings disclosed in Genesis Revisited and Divine Encounters suggest that the Great Flood was caused by the Antarctic ice sheet slipping. I propose that the removal of the ice blocks suddenly ended the last ice age around 13,000 years ago. Other pre-discovery Mundi maps, like the 1531 Orontius Dineus map, which depicts an ice-free Antarctica from the air, are also understood by the authors in terms of divine encounters. In 1958, 
Radar and other advanced technologies were employed to map the under-ice contours of Antarctica. The Antarctic continent was discovered in 1820, despite being shown on a map drawn by the Turkish Admiral Piri Reis in 1513. Several studies on the abrupt end of the last ice age have been done, one of which was conducted in 1958 during the International Geophysical Year. The findings confirmed the abruptness and timing of the end of the ice age in Antarctica, but they did not explain the phenomenon's genesis. Additional historical research supports these findings. The end of the last ice age was slow in Greenland, North Atlantic, but rapid and abrupt in Antarctica, South Atlantic, according to a study of ancient temperatures. Nature, 26th of February, 2009. A recent study of ancient sea levels, published in Science on the 6th of February, 2009, confirmed the sudden collapse of Antarctica's ice sheet as well as the discovery that the tidal wave was at least three times larger than previously believed, and that its maximum impact occurred approximately 2,000 miles away because of the terrain of the continent and the seabeds. As shown in the following figure, the most crucial tidal influence reaches northeast from the Mediterranean Sea to Mount Ararat and the Persian Gulf to the lands of the Bible. This date for the flood lies between assertions in cuneiform literature that it happened during the Lion Age and that the Zodiacal Age started about 11,000 BC. After adding 432,000 and 13,000 years, the kingdom's fall from heaven occurred 445,000 years ago. Then, extraterrestrial entities known as the Anunnaki by the Sumerians came to Earth. These were the Anakians Nephilim of Genesis 6. Erda in German, from Erda in Old High German, Jor in Icelandic, Ford in Danish, Erta in Gothic, and Eta in Middle English are all variations on the same theme. Different pronunciations exist for Eretz in Kurdish, Aramaic, and Hebrew. There is unanimity among the lists of pre-diluvial rulers that Eridu was the first city on Earth. It is also important to remember that the many lists of dynasties in the ancient cities of the gods do not include the names of the gods whose towns were designated as twelve centers, but the names of succeeding head commanders. All sources agree that Kalulim and Alalgar were the first monarchs of Eridu. According to tablet CBS 10673, Eridu was permanently committed to Nudimur, an Enki eponym meaning he who crafts artifacts, and remained his worship site regardless of who ruled as chief administrator there, king. Zipa remained the cult center of the Akkadian god Utu, also known as Shama, but Shurupak was always associated with Sud, Medic, Ninhosar.
Hi there, welcome back. We're doing this marathon of Sumerian origins. Sumerian origins. Let's see here. Thanks for 170k. Ancient alliance. Lost city. Hmm. Let's start genes. Animaculinatus. Okay, um, oh, that's a short. Here we go. Biggest anime I could discover I've found. Gods came to Earth, kingdoms of Samara. Ahead 
and the boatman Urjanabi finally carried him over to me. He kept it to him. He believed at the southern end of the deck and close to the Sinai Peninsula, and the boatman could have taken him. From there, he was to follow a regular way, and we to come and meet a caravan for the great sea and his own way. Again, the geography is recognizable, but biblical terminology for the great sea was the biblical name for the Mediterranean Sea, journeying in the Negev, the dry southern region of Canaan. Gilgamesh was to go westward for a certain distance, looking for tombstone markers. There, Urshanabi told him he was to make a turn and reach the town named Itla. It was located some distance from the Great Sea. Beyond Itla, in the fourth region of the Dar, lay the restricted area. Was Itla a city of the Dar? Or a city of men. The events there described in the fragmented Hittite version of the Gilgamesh epic indicate that it was a place for wealth. It was sanctified cities with various gods coming and going through it or within easy reach of it. But men too could go there. The way to it was indicated by road markers. Gilgamesh not only rested there and changed his flesh clothing, he also obtained there the sheep which he daily offered as sacrifices to the gods. Such a city is known to us from the Old Testament. It was located where the south of Canaan merges into the Sinai Peninsula. A Greek name for the peninsula's central plain, its extensity was denoted by its name, yes, sanctified. It was distinguished from a northern main city, situated significantly on the approaches to Baalbek, by being called Kadesh Barnea which, stemming from the Sumerian, could have meant Kadesh of the Tiny Stone Pillar. In the age of the patriarchs, it was included in the domain of Abraham, who journeyed to the Negev and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur. The city, by name and by function, is also known to us from the Canaanite tales of Zara, Lamb, craving for immortality, Shanel, who was named, asked the god El for a rightful heir, so as his son could arrest for him the memories of Sheila at Kadesh. In another Ugaritic text, we are told that a son of El named Shubani, the seventh, the biblical town of Beersheba, the well of the seven, might have been named after him, was told to raise a commemorating pillar in the desert of Kadesh. Indeed, both Cyril of Zerlo and Rene Bisset, who in the periodical Syria pioneered the translation and understanding of the Ugaritic text, concluded that the locale of the many epic tales was the region between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, the Sinai Peninsula. God Bog, who loved to fish and liked children, went for his hunting to the desert of Allah, an area associated with the Great Sea. As both Zerlo and Bissot have pointed out, this is a geographical clue connecting the Ugaritic locale with the biblical record of the Exodus. The Israelites, according to Numbers 33, journeyed from Mara, the place of bitter waters, and Luim, the oasis of date palms, to Allah. An image of God hunting in the desert of Allah can be found in the votive CDM of Ezekiel 104. Fourth tale mentions El and the younger gods in the same arena as that of Exodus are found in a text entitled Bible Scholars on the birth of the gracious and beautiful God. Very opening verses locate the action in the desert of Kadesh, unmistakably a desert bordering on the Yam Kush. The 
good reasons, I'll be okay. I called and raised the subpoena for Zara, talking with a friend. I was safe from in the city of Ascendant and Boeing, in the desert of Sopa. The Canaanite tech provide us with yet another clue. By and large, they refer to the Papillon's head as M, the premium name for Lockheed. A generic title rather than a personal name. But in the quoted text, L identifies himself as Zira, as his spouse casually calls. Zira is the Semitic for moon. God better known as Ben. And Nikal is a Semitic rendition of Nengar, the Sumerian name for the spouse of the moon god. Scholars have advanced many theories regarding the origin of the Canaanite name Zara. For one, the obvious reason is that, as the name stated, it belongs to the king has been among the preferred solutions. The moon's crescent was the emblem of the deity in these lands, the winged state where it is located. We find that the main cross bearing of the central Sinai, the well-watered site of Nasser, still bears the name of Ben Nikal, as we saw in the Roman Kiriat of the city Septuagint. And we can confidently conclude that the land of Shomim was the Sinai Peninsula. An examination of the geography, topography, geology, climate, flora, and history of the Sinai Peninsula will affirm our identification and clarify the Sinai's role in the affairs of gods and men. The Mesopotamian text describes Shomim as situated at the mouth of two bodies of water, with the Sinai Peninsula shaped as an inverted triangle in these regions where the Red Sea is separated into two halves. Gulf of Suez on the west, and the Gulf of Elah, the Gulf of Aqaba on the east. Indeed, when Egyptian depictions of the land of Seth or the Beyond Gulf are turned around, they place thematically a peninsula with the Sinai features. An ancient map of the area is compared to a modern map in Figure 105 on the Roman Kiriat. Levels off via sandy hills to the Mediterranean coastline. The coastal strip constituted a land bridge between Asia and Africa from time immemorial. Egyptian pharaohs, the Egyptian great Kenan and Hanusha, had to challenge the Hittites. Argon of Akkad claimed that he reached and washed his blessings in the Mediterranean. The sea lions which swam along the Mediterranean plains in time by enchantment. Full moon by hand captured. Sargon II, king of Assyria in the 8th century BC, asserted that he had conquered the area stretching from Big Yashin to the shore of the Salt Sea as far as the border of Shomim. The name Salt Sea has survived to this day as a Hebrew name for the Dead Sea, another confirmation that Shomim lay in proximity to the Dead Sea. Several Assyrian kings mentioned the brook Anisha as a geographic landmark on their expeditions to Egypt. Sargon II lists the brook as he described in the conquest of Ashdod, the Philistine city in the Mediterranean coast. Esarhaddon, who ruled somewhat later, spoke to Nabushi and trod upon Arzan, the brook of Egypt. I put Ahishili, the king of Sutton, upon Kaniah, king of Shomim, I enclosed Britain. 
made with the leaders of thy sacrifice of a visible man, for the Lord hath sent his Sinai water, shall I give it from his water every day the rain of Egypt, now called Wadi El Ari. After Barakal, who followed Esar Haddon on the throne of Assyria, when that he laid his judgment over Lord Kish and Tyre, which is in the upper sea,
had leaked water leaks. Water drilling is confirmed with incredible fire. Above ground, Harry Gruber below his engineer with modern drilling and pumping equipment, a lake of fuel, sparkling water. Could the Nephilim support space age technology have nascent technology? Small states rather than a little water in a dry, rotty bed, the water that drops there after Moses has struck the rock as indicated by the waves. Taken by hands of facts, with which he performed the miracles in Egypt, the Lord told Moses, you will see me standing upon a certain rock. Strike that rock with the staff, and there shall come out of it water, which people shall drink, enough water for a multitude of people and their livestock. So that the greatness of Yahweh be known, Lord wishes to take with him to sight some witnesses. A miracle took place before the eyes of the elders of Israel. A Sumerian tale concerning Shomer relates an almost identical event. It is a tale of bad times caused by a shortage of water. Crops withered, cattle were not fed, animals went thirsty, and people shall starve. King Sipilak, tries to kill me, ruler and sad, complained to the father Enki, the city which thou hast given, Shomer, the city thou hast given, has not waters of the river. Unbathed is the maiden. No sparkling water is poured in the city. Studying the problem, Enki concluded that the only solution would be to bring up subterranean water. The depth must have been greater than what could be obtained by digging a usual well. So Enki conceived a plan whereby the layers of rock would be penetrated by a miracle, fire from the sky. Father Enki answered him simply with dark. Let divine Enki position himself in the sky. From this position, tightly affixed to his breast, and from high, directed toward the earth. From the source from which he earth's waters, let him bring these deep waters from the earth. So instructed, Enki Salam proceeded to bring up water from the subterranean sources. Enki positioning himself in the sky, a missile tightly tied to his breast, from high, directly toward the earth. He let go of his missile from high in the sky, drew the crystal stone, and brought up water. From the source from Ithi's earth's waters, he brought her deep water from the earth. Then the soul shot from the skies to appear and caused visible water to come up. Anticipating the incredulity of his readers, Enki's tribe affirmed at the tale's end, Verily, it was so. The miracle, the text went on, did work. Shilmoon became a land of crop raising fields and farms which bear grain, and Shilmoon City became fourth city of the land, a sign of plays and flooring fields. The parallels between Shilmoon and Sinai are thus doubly affirmed. First, the existence of the subterranean water reservoir below the rocky surface. Secondly, the presence of Enki Shaman, the priest or commander, in the proximity. The Sinai Peninsula can also account for all the products for which Shilmoon was renowned. Shilmoon was a source of gemstones, that is the brilliant lapidary jewels, which the Sumerians cherished. It is an established fact that the pharaohs of Egypt obtained a blue-green gemstone turquoise, as well as a blue-green mineral, malachite, from the southwestern parts of the Sinai. Nearly in the turquoise mining area is now called Wadi Madara, there, tunnels were cut into the rocky sides of the Wadi Canyon and 
mining went into Sibylon's purple. Later on, mining also took place in Saharian, Serebus al-Karim. The Egyptian inscriptions dating back to the Third Dynasty have been found at Wadi Nadara, and it is believed that it was then that the Egyptians began to station garrisons and occupy the lines on a continuing basis. Archaeological discoveries in Mesolithic history of first pharaohs of the Indus and captured Asiatic nomads convinced scholars that at first the Egyptians only raided mines developed earlier by Semitic tribesmen, indeed the Egyptian name for circles, after which they called the Sinai, the land of Moscow, stems from the Semitic verb meaning to line, and is tracked by cutting. These mining areas were in the domain of the goddess Hathor, who was known both as Lady of Sinai and Lady of Moscow. The great goddess of older times, one of the early sky gods of the Egyptians, she was nicknamed by them the Cow, was depicted with cow's horns. Her name, Hathor, spelled hieroglyphically by drawing a cow horn within the enclosure, has been interpreted by scholars to mean House of Horus, or the primeval depiction of the falcon, but it literally meant falcon tower, which affirms our conclusions regarding the location and functions of the land of the Mithras. Since these figure 106 and figure 7 in the bonus PDF representation of the falcon. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Turquoise was obtained from the Sinai Peninsula before the 4th millennium BC in one of the world's first important hard rock mining operations. At that time, the Sumerian civilization was only beginning to surge, and the Egyptian one fell only a millennium away. These men could have organized the mining activities. The Egyptians said it was thought that the god of sciences conveyed by giving the assignment of Sinai to Hathor the Egyptians emulated Sumerian traditions. According to Sumerian texts, the god who organized the mining operations of the Indian Kings of Enki, the god of knowledge, Enkil-Muru, the text protector, was allotted in pre-Diluvian times to Nimrud's daughter, sister of Enki and Enlil. In her youth, she was a smashing beauty who seemed moved to beneficence, but in her old age, she was nicknamed the Cow and as the goddess of the gate cow, was depicted with cow's horns. Similarities between her and Hathor, and the analogies between their domains, are too obvious to require elaboration. A depiction of the cow can be found in the bonus PDF under figure 107. The Sinai was also a major source of copper, and the evidence here is that the Egyptians relied mostly on raiding expeditions to obtain it. Because they had to penetrate deeper into the peninsula. A pharaoh of the 12th dynasty, the time of Abraham, left up these comments of his people. Reaching the boundaries of foreign lands was a feat, exploring the mysterious valleys. Reaching the limits of the unknown, he boasted that his men lost not a single case of the same species. Recent exploration, he found found ample evidence showing that during the times of the early season of Egypt in the 3rd millennium BC, Sinai was densely inhabited by Semitic copper-smelting and turquoise-mining tribes who resisted the penetration of Pharaonic expeditions into their territories. We could establish the existence of fairly large industrial metallurgical and 
for mine, mine is cast, and copper smelting installation, fresh from the western part of southern Sinai, to as far east as Elah, at the head of the Gulf of Akaba. Elah, known in the Old Testament times as Ekron Gilgal, was indeed a Pittsburgh of the ancient world. Some twenty years ago, Nelson Brook uncovered at Kiriath, just north of Elah, King Solomon's copper mine. The ores were taken to Etion Gazel, where they were smelted and refined in one of the largest, if not the largest, of metallurgical centers in the region, the ancient Canaan. The archaeological evidence once again ties in with the biblical and Mesopotamian texts. Ethar Hazen, king of Assyria, foisted that upon Benaiah, king of Kilmiriam, I impose curses. Are mentioned in the Old Testament as inhabitants of the southern Sinai, and their name literally meant smith, metallurgist. Besides, into which Moses narrates the escape from Egypt into the Sinai was that of the Shemites. Archie and Ford pointed out that the biblical term smith stems from the Sumerian Shur, Shaka. Sarah Ramses III, who reigned in the century following the reported his invasion of these copper smith dwellers and the plundering of the metallurgical center of Timna Ilah that destroyed the people's tools and signs such as statues that plundered their tents and people's possessions their cattle likewise without number they were pinioned and brought as captives and tortured and beaten I gave them to the gods and eat them to their temples and set forth my man to the ancient temple Copper mine of the Gerenath Plain. Their galleys carried them. Others on a land journey were upon their asses. It was not their perfect days since the reign of the Pharaohs began. The mine was refined, abounding in copper. It was loaded by ten thousands into the galleys. They were sent forward to Egypt and arrived safely. It was carried and made into a heap under the top of Salkins and many bars of copper and was valued being the color of gold and free refinement. I allowed all the people to see them. I told them to work to spend the rest of his life in the mines of Kilmir that the God had set in the future years. And so it was that Gilgamesh conceived the plan to charter a ship in Egypt and bid his comrade along in the land of mines and the land of misery, where both parts of the same land. Our identification matches before we continue with our reconstruction of the story of David Gilgamesh, it is important to buttress our conclusion that Kilmuri was the Sumerian name for the Sinai Peninsula. This is not what scholars have held until now, and we should analyze their contrary views and show why they have been wrong. The persistent school of thought, one of the early advocates of the Hebrew formula, identified Kilmuri, sometimes transcribed as Gilmuri, as the island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. This view relies most heavily on the inscription by Sargon II of Assyria, wherein he asserted that among the kings named in Britain was Uteri, king of Gilmul, whose abode is situated like a city, 30 double hours away, in the midst of the seas as the sun rises. The distinction is taken to mean that Kilmuri was not an enemy, and the scholars who hold this view identify the seas where the sun rises 
as the person goes. We then end up with ball rapping and dancing. There are several flaws in this interpretation. First, it could well be that the only capital city of Berlin was on an offshore island. In fact, there's no doubt that there was a land so named and a so many cities. Secondly, other Assyrian inscriptions which describe cities as being in the midst of the sea apply this principle to cities of land as common ones, but not of an island, as, for instance, Arvad on the Mediterranean coast. Then, this sixteen year the sun rises in the basin sea and sets to beautiful. The Persian Gulf does not qualify, since it ran to the south, not to the east of Mesopotamia. Also, Bahrain lies too close to Mesopotamia to account for 30 double hours of sailing. It is situated some 300 miles south of the Mesopotamian Gulf Coast. That's 60 hours of sailing, even on a measurable map, a distance many times greater could be covered. Another major problem arising from a Bahrain name identification concerns the product for which Shomun was renowned. Even in the days of Gilgamesh, not all of the land of Shomun was as it is pictured at it. There was a part on the land where sentient men toiled in the dark and dusty night, digging out the copper and gemstones for which Shomun was named. As long associated with scenery, culture, and trade, Shomun supplied it with certain desired pieces of wood and its agricultural areas, such as the Girgash Mountain and the Tenshikalan Sea of heaving waters, provided the ancient world with highly prized onions and dates. Bahrain had one of these conceptions and ordinary dates. So to circumvent the problem, the pro-Bahrain school has developed a complex answer. Jeffrey Bibby and others of like mind suggest that Bahrain was a transshipment point. The product there really indeed came from some other more distant land, but the ships which carried these goods did not go all the way to Sumer. They stopped and unloaded their goods in Bahrain, where the famous merchant and steamer took them up to the final haul, the Marian port, so that when the Sumerian scribes wrote down where the goods come from, wrote down Gilmoon, meaning Bahrain, and that one of his ships would have sailed great distances, failed to sail the Tigris Sea, to Mason, Mesopotamia, and instead go to the extra trouble of, of offloading at Bahrain. Also, the city would have stands in direct contradiction to specific statements by rulers of Sumer and the past that the ships of Gilmoon, among ships from other lands, Anchored at their ports of Sumer. Hernansi, the king of Lagash, some two centuries after Gilgamesh's timid neighboring ruler, claimed that the ships of Shomun brought him wood and fishes. He recognized the name Shomun in his inscriptions by the pictograph of the Nephilim. Sargon, the first ruler of Akkad, boasted that at the wharf of Akkad he made more ships from Maula, ships from Dragon, and ships from Shomun. Pictographs can be found in the Burnish PDF of the figures 106. Clearly, then, the ships brought the product Shomun straight to the Mesopotamian port proper, as logic and economics would dictate. Likewise, the ancient texts took direct exports from Mesopotamia to Shomun. 
Northern Cape, where the shipment of wooden machinery and ground barley from Madagascar to Fort Maine totaled 2,500 tons. One of the leading opponents of the Bahrain dealers, Samuel F. Kramer, stressed the fact that the Mesopotamian text described it as a distant land, reachable not without great expense. These descriptions do not match Yet another statement, that the Philmoon was the land of Sun Diamond, Kramer concluded first that Philmoon was a land and not an island, and secondly that it must have been located in ancient Sumer, for it is in the east of the Sun Rising. Looking in the east for a place where two bodies of water meet, he could come up only with a southeastern point, where the Persian Gulf meets the Indian Ocean, or is it that or somewhere near the Indus River? Kramer's own hesitation stems from well-known facts that numerous Sumerian and Akkadian texts listing countries and people do not mention Philmoon in the association of such as Sumerian and Iran or Iraqa. Instead, they lump together as lands situated next to each other. Maluha, Nubia, Ethiopia, Maga, Philmoon. The proximity between Egypt, Maga, and Philmoon is spelled out at the end of the Enki and Ninhursag text, where the appointment of Ninhilak as Lord of Magan, or of Enkad as Lord of Philmoon, obtains the blessing of the two gods. It is also evidence of a remarkable text written at the autobiography of Enki, which describes his activities at the deluge, assisting mankind in establishing civilization. Again, Philmoon is listed next to Magan and Maluha, the lands of Magan and
have seen in Figure 189 found in the Bowman Ecclesiastes. Alongside the winged spirit, the emblem of the twelve planets, the symbol most widely depicted by all the ancient nations, was the Tree of Life. Like the Anza of the Orient, Felix von Lebdow has shown back in 1912 that the Greek Adam Yin column capitals, as well as Egyptian ones, were in fact diversions of the Tree of Life in the shape of a big hand, and confirmed earlier suggestions that the fruit of life and legend of entertaining was some special species of the big fruit. We find the theme of the big hand as the symbol of life carried on even in Muslim tradition and in the decorations of Cairo's grand mosque. Identities to be found in the famous PDF on the figure 189. Many major studies such as the Atui, Rathleven, Bridge, Artichery, and Hendon Hazema, and the tree and the tree of life, ancient Near Eastern religions by Pierre Gagarin, show that the concept of such a tree growing in the boat of the God has spread from the Near East all over Asia and has become a tenet of all religions everywhere. The source of all these depictions and beliefs in Sumerian records in the land of the living. Still means old woman says love, I am an old woman, or old man says love, I am an old man. The Sumerians' masters of bird play called the land of the living still mini, yet this name could also mean land of living, or sin, also meant life. The tree of life in Sumerian was Ishtar, but Ish meant a man-made, a manufactured object, but that Ishtar could also mean the being of the true life find the eagle men sometimes saluting not the big hawk, but the buzzard, as we see in figure 60 of the Roman PDF. But it is not heightened further, as we find that in Greek religious art, the Apollo is associated with the big hawk. An ancient Greek depiction of Delphi shows that the Apollo's replica that was erected outside Apollo's temple was set up next to a big hawk, since no such creatures were in Greece. Was an artificial tree made, as it should be, of bronze. The association of the Apollo with the big hawk must have been a matter of basic symbolism, for these depictions were repeated also in respect to other Greek oracle centers. The proximity of the Apollo to the big hawk is illustrated in the Doric PDF under figure 111. We have found earlier that the Apollo served as a lesson in Greek, Egyptian, Nubian, and Canaanite oracle centers, and the Duat. Now we find this shown in Splendor, linked to the Big Hawk, the tree in the land of living. Indeed, Sumerian texts accompanying depictions of the cherubim included the following incantation, the dark brown tree of Omen, my lord and my man, the tree that tells the count, great heaven's word record, my lord and my man, the palm tree, great city of oracles, Mesopotamian depiction shows a god holding up in his hand this palm tree, great tree of oracles. He is granting this fruit of life to sin at the place of the four gods. We have already come upon this place in Egyptian texts and depictions, where the four gods of the four cardinal points, located by scaling the heaven of the Duat. We have also seen that the Sumerian gateway to heaven was marked by the gate cards. Examples of the 
Kids Home and Top 10 of Disney Dollar can be found in the bonus PDF on the Super Walter Disney Files and Disney Channel series. And we have no more doubt that the closet of the ancient church of immortality has a place here, somewhere in fine art peninsula. Somewhere in fine art peninsula, the Nephilim had established their post-Diluvian space camp. Somewhere in the fine art peninsula, Mitch with their dogs blessing, could approach a certain mountain. Man, go back. The guardian bird men ordered our abandon. To the land on which you stand belongs to God alone. Man, do not come nearer, the Lord called out to Moses, for the place whereon thou standest is sacred ground. There, evil men challenged Gilgamesh to take sunrise. Foolish evil eyes, he was no mere mortal. Marians called this mountain in council, Mount Machi, the Mount of the Supreme Bar. The tales of Alexander named it Mount Ulysses, Mount Moses. Its identical nature and function, coupled with its identical name, suggest that in all instances it was the same mountain that was the destination landmark. It thus seems that the answer to the question, where in the peninsula was the gateway, is right at hand. Is not the mount of the Exodus, Mount Sinai, clearly marked on maps in the peninsula, the tallest peak among the high granite mountains of southern Sinai? The Israelite Exodus from Egypt has been commemorated each year for the past 33 centuries by the celebration of the Passover. The historical and religious records of the Hebrews are replete with references to the Exodus, their wanderings in the wilderness, the covenant with Mount Sinai, People have been constantly reminded of this Yahweh, whom the whole nation of Israel has seen the Lord Yahweh alight in his glory upon the sacred mount, and its location was de-emphasized, lest the tent should be made as the place of holiness. There is no recorded instance in the Bible of anyone even trying to pay a return visit to Mount Sinai, with one exception, which happened to Elijah. Some four centuries after the Exodus, he escaped for his life after having slain the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. Setting his course for the mountain Sinai, he lost his way on the desert. An angel of the Lord revived him and placed him in a cave in the mountain. Nowadays, it would seem, one needs no guiding angel to find Mount Sinai. Modern pilgrims and pilgrims have done for centuries past. Checked his course for the monastery of Santa Caterina. So named after the martyred chapter of Egypt, whose body in Egypt perished in midnight, bearing her name. After an overnight stay at daybreak, the pilgrims began to climb the regal new camp, Mount Moses in Nazareth. It is the southern peak of a two-mile mountain, rising south of the monastery. The traditional Mount Sinai, with which the theophanies and the law givers are associated. An image of the monastery of Santa Caterina and Mount Moses can be found in the bonus PDF under figures 113 and figure 114, respectively. To climb to that peak is long, difficult, involving an ascent of some 2,500 feet. One path is by when is some 4,000 steps laid out by the monks along the western slopes of the mountain. Each year, it will take several hours longer to dig in the valley between the masses and a mountain appropriate to that was Jephthah, the father of all Moses. 
and driving gradually along the eastern slope until it connects with the last 750 steps of the first mile. It was at that intersection, according to the Marsh tradition, that Elijah encountered the Lord. Christian Catholic and Muslim scribe, both small and crudely built, Mark described that the tablets of the law were given to Moses, a cave nearby is revealed as the collection of us, wherein the Lord placed Moses as his mock prophet, as related in Exodus chapter 32, verse 24. A well along the descent route is identified as the well from which Moses brought his exhausted son to God. Every possible event relating to the Holy Land is thus assigned by the monk's tradition a definite spot in Cathedral Musa and its surroundings. From the Cathedral Musa, one can see some of the other peaks which make up the granite contrast, of which this mount is a member. Surprisingly, it appears to be lower than many of the tables. Indeed, in support of the St. Catherine legend, the monks have put up a sign in the main building which proclaims altitude 5,012 feet, may peak mount 7,560 feet, Santa Catherine Mount, 8,576 feet. As one is convinced that Mount Catherine is indeed the higher one, in fact the highest in the peninsula, and thus rightly chosen by the angels to hide the saint's body thereon, one is also disappointed that contrary to long-held belief, God had brought the children of Israel to this forbidding area to impress upon them his might not from the fallen land. A non-existent site of worship. In 1809, the Swiss scholar Johann Ludwig Burkhardt arrived in the Near East in behalf of the British Association for Promoting the Discovery of the Indo-Continent of Africa. Studying Arabic and Muslim customs, he put a turban on his head, dressed as an Arab, and changed his name to Ibrahim Ibn Abd Allah. Abraham, the son of Allah, the Gracious. He was thus able to travel in parts hitherto forbidden to the infidels, discovering ancient Egyptian temples and Eastern baths, and at the Nabatean rock city of Petra, Manchuria. On April 15, 1863, he set out on camelback from the town of Shiraz at the head of the Gulf of Suez. His goal was to retrace the route of the Exodus and thereby to establish the true identity of Mount Sinai, following the presumed route taken by Moses. He traveled south along the western coast of the peninsula. There, the mountains began some 10 to 20 miles away from the coast, being a desolate coast of plains, cut here and there by wadis and a couple of hot springs, including one favored by the Pharaoh. As he went south, Burkhardt noted the geography, topography, compared conditions by referring to the descriptions and names of the stations of the Exodus as mentioned in the Bible, where the limestone plateau ends. Nature has provided a sandy belt which separates the plateau from a belt of Nubian sandstone, serving as a cross to Sinai Avenue. There, Burkhardt turned to India, and after a while set his course southward into the granite heartland, reaching the Kassel Monastery from the north, as today observations are of a lingering interest. The area, produced excellent game. Monks had escaped from seven large boxes of them at Nanyang tribute to the Sultan of 
talked about the nobles. The Prussians and the Aryans met a rendezvous. They invited them to the annual feast in honor of St. Juniper. They called him El Primero, the Ever Prince. Burkhart ascended Mount Musa and Catherine and toured the area extensively. He was especially fascinated by Mount Dun Kumar, a mere 180 feet shorter than Mount St. Catherine, which rises somewhat southwest of the new St. Catherine Bridge. From a distance, its top dazzles in the sun with the most brilliant white color. This is for an unusual infusion of particles of mica in the granite rocks, forming a striking contrast with the blackened surface of the slate and the red granite of the mountain's lower part and the surrounding area. The chief also had the distinction of offering an unobstructed view of both the Gulf of Suez, El Khor, the Egyptian Nubian, and the Gulf of Aqaba, the Gulf of Iran. Burkhart found it mentioned in the Covenant's records that Dun Kumar used to be a principal location of monastic settlements. In the 15th century, caravans of asses, laden with corn and other provisions, passed by this place regularly from the Covenant to El Khor, for this is the nearest road to that part of it. His way back was via Wadi Hira, a distillation of Argentine where the body leaves the mountains and reaches the coast of Turkey, Burkhardt climbed up a magnificent mountain rising over 6,800 feet, Mount Turpin, one of the tallest in the peninsula. There he found remains inscribed with a puzzling description. Additional research established that the main monastic temple in China through most of the century was at Wadi Hira, near Turpin, and not at St. Catherine. When Burkhardt published his findings, his conclusions shook scholarly and biblical worlds. The true Mount Sinai, Hades, was not Mount Musa, but Mount Turban. Inspired by Burkhardt's writings in the French account Beyond de la Bourne, toward the Sinai in 1826 and 1828, his main contribution to the knowledge of the area were his fine maps and drawings. Followed in 1839 by the Scottish artist David Rogers, his magnificent drawings, wherein he embellished accuracy with some imaginative color, aroused great interest in an era before photography. The next major journey to Sinai was undertaken by the American Edward Robinson, together with Eli Smith. Like Burkhardt, they left Suez City on camelback, armed with this book and Dola Gore's map. It took them 13 early spring days to reach St. Catherine. There, Robinson gave the monks and legends a thorough going examination. He found out that at Sila, there indeed was a superior monastic community, sometimes led by sole bishops, who was chaplain of several other monastic communities in southern Sinai, or subordinate, so that tradition must have placed greater emphasis on Sila. In Hailden documents, he discovered that Mount Musa and Catherine were of no Christian consciousness in the early 16th century, and that Catherine's supremacy developed only in the 17th century, when the other unfortified monastic communities fell prey to invaders and marauders. Checking local Arab traditions, he found that the biblical names Sinai and Horeb were totally unknown to the local Bedouins. Was the Catherine monk? began to apply these names to certain mountains. What Burkhardt then found. 
Robinson found a problem with the room by which Burkhardt had been Hi there, welcome back. We're doing this marathon of Sumerian origins. Sumerian origins. Let's see here. Thanks for 170k. Uh, ancient alliance. Lost city. Hmm. Sardines. Ganymedes. Okay, um, that's a short. Here we go. Biggest enemy I could discover of them. Gods who came to Earth, kingdoms of Samara. Then intending to land on the western shores of the Red Sea, he 
Jesus, Father, we thank you and we praise you. We are straight ahead of the peninsula of Sinai and the land of the burning Gideon and the Hebrew people. Fortunately for our investigation, Gilgamesh had met with a mentor, the gifted son of darling God, soon after he began his voyage. He was not too far gone from Sinai, for in Gideon, in the presence of the gift caused his sickness, that they make their way back on foot to Uruk. Resolved to reach Kilmudin, Gilgamesh trekked instead over land to his chosen destination. Were his soul on the shores of the Red Sea, he would have cut across the Arabian Peninsula. But instead, he set his course to the northwest. We know that for a fact because, having crossed the desert and desolate mountains, his first glimpse of civilization was a low-lying there was a city nearby, and an inn on its outskirts. The alewoman warned him that the king he saw and wished to cross was the sea of the waters of death. Just as the cedars of Lebanon had served as Uruk's landmark for determining the first destination of Gilgamesh, so does the sea of the waters of death serve as a unique clue to the whereabouts of Gilgamesh and his second journey. Throughout the Near East and all the lands of the ancient world, there is only one such body of water, Calypso Falls to this very day, the Dead Sea. It is indeed a low-lying sea, being the lowest body of water on the face of Earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. Its waters are so saturated with salts and minerals that it is totally devoid of all marine and plant life. The city that overlooks the sea of the waters of death is now surrounded by a wall, temple was dedicated to Sin, the moon god. Outside the city there was an inn. The hostess took Gilgamesh in, extending to him hospitality, giving him information. The uncanny similarities of young Gilgamesh cannot be missed. When the Israelites' forty years of wandering in the wilderness had come to an end, it was time to enter Sinai. Coming from the Sinai Peninsula, they circled the Dead Sea on its eastern side, until they reached the place where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. When Moses stood upon a hill, overlooking the plain, he could see, as Gilgamesh had seen, the shimmering waters of the low-lying sea. In the plain, on the other side of the Jordan, stood a city, Jericho. They brought the Israelites the sands of the Canaan, and they sent two spies to explore its defenses. A woman who sinned was at the city's wall extended to them hospitality, gave them information and guidance. The Hebrew name for Jericho is Yericho. It literally means green city. The city dedicated to the moon god, Sin. This was a city, the very city reached by Gilgamesh 16 centuries before the Exodus. Was Jericho already in existence circa 2900 BC when Gilgamesh was killed? Archaeologists argue that Jericho has been inhabited since before 7000 BC and served as a flourishing urban center since about 3500 BC. It was certainly there when Gilgamesh arrived. Refreshed and back to Sin, Gilgamesh planned his continued journey. Finding himself at the northern end of the Dead Sea, he inquired of the alewoman whether he could sail across its waters rather than circling overland, or if he could use the overland route to 
would have taken the route of Deirdre and Icebolt in the ship, but in reverse. For Gilgamesh wished to go with the Israelites, then to attain them. When the boatman heard Zanabi finally carried him over, he stepped ashore, he believed, at the southern end of the Dead Sea, as close to the Sinai Peninsula as the boatman could have taken him. From there, he was to follow a regular way, a route in common use by caravans, toward the Great Sea, the Sudcon West. Again, the geography is recognizable from biblical terminology. For the Great Sea was the biblical name for the Mediterranean Sea, turning in at the Negev and the dry southern region of Canaan. Gilgamesh was to go westward for a certain distance, looking for the Tombstone Market. There, Ursanabi told him he was to make a turn and reach the town named Itlaka. It was located some distance from the Great Sea. Beyond Itla, in the fourth region of the Dar, lay the restricted area. Was Itla a city of the gods or a city of men? The events there described in the fragmented Hittite version of the Gilgamesh epic indicate that it was a place for both. It was a sanctified city with various gods coming and going through it or with them feuding with each other. But men, too, could go there. The way to it was indicated by road markers. Gilgamesh not only rested there and changed his sweat clothing, he also obtained there the sheep, which he daily offered as sacrifices to the gods. Such a city is known to us from the Old Testament. It was located where the south of Canaan merges into the Sinai Peninsula, a Greek name for peninsula's central plain, which sensibly was denoted by its name, Yes, sanctified. It was distinguished from a northern name city, situated significantly on the approaches to Baalpeth, by being called Kadesh Barnea, which, stemming from the Sumerian, could have meant Kadesh of the Sandstone Pillars. In the age of the patriarchs, it was included in the domain of Abraham, who journeyed to the Negev and dwelt between Sidon and Shur. The city, by name and by function, is also known to us from the Canaanite tales of God, man craving for immortality. Shanel, he was named, asked the god El for a rightful heir that his son could arrest for him a commemorative tefillah at Kadesh. In another Jubaritic text, we are told that a son of El named Shibani, the seventh, the biblical town of Beersheba, the well of the seven, might have been named after him, was told to raise a commemorating pillar in the desert of Kadesh. Indeed, both Charles Gerlow and René de Frey, who in the periodical Syria pioneered the translation and understanding of the Jubilitic text, concluded that the locale of the main epic tales was the region between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean, the Sinai Peninsula. God Bog, who loved to fish and liked children, went for his hunting to the desert of Allah, an area associated with the Great Sea. As both Gerlow and Rousseau have pointed out, this is a geographical clue connecting the Ugaritic locale with the biblical record of the Exodus. The Israelites, according to Numbers 33, journeyed from Mara, the ancient river Jordan, and Luim, the oasis of Big Sand, to Allah. An image of God is hunting in the desert of Allah, can be found in the votive PDF of the Hebrew Bible. Sports stories mentioning El and the younger gods in the same arena as that of Exodus are found in a text entitled by the scholars, The Birth of the Gracious and Beautiful God. 
very opening verses, locating action in the desert of Egypt, unmistakably a desert bordering on the Yarrow Hills, Sea of Reeds, of the Exodus. I called the gracious and beautiful God, Son of the Prince, I will take him in the city of Ascended and Goeth, in the desert of Sophus. The Canaanite text provided for yet another clue. By and large, they refer to the Magion head as L, supreme or lofty. A generic title rather than a personal name. But in the quoted text, L identifies himself as Yira and his spouse as Nikah. Yira is the Semitic Ramun, a god better known as Ben, and Nikah is a Semitic rendition of Nengar, the Sumerian name for the spouse of the moon god. Scholars have advanced many theories regarding the origin of for one, the obvious reason that, as the name stated, it belongs to Sin, has been among the preferred solutions. The moon's crescent was the emblem of the deity in these lands, the winged scapegoat is located. We find that the main cross lines of the central Sinai, the well-watered site of Nasus, still bears the name of Sin's spouse, as we saw in the Roman PDF by the Sydney Century and we can confidently conclude that the land of Sumer was the Sinai Peninsula. An examination of the geography, topography, geology, climate, flora, and history of the Sinai Peninsula will affirm our identification and clarify the Sinai's role in the affairs of gods and men. The Mesopotamian text describes the still moon as situated at the mouth of three bodies of water in the Sinai Peninsula as an inverted triangle indeed begins where the Red Sea is separated into two halves, the Gulf of Suez on the west and the Gulf of Elah, the Gulf of Aqaba on the east. Indeed, when Egyptian depictions of the land of Seth and beyond that are turned around, they show schematically a peninsula with the Sinai features. An ancient map of the area is compared to a modern map in Figure 105 and presented to you in the levels off via sandy hills to the Mediterranean coastline. The coastal strip constituted a land bridge between Asia and Africa from time immemorial. Distant pharaohs visited to invade Canaan and Phoenicia and to challenge the Hittites. Argon of Akkad claimed that he reached and launched his weapons in the Mediterranean. The sea lions arrived along the Mediterranean plain in time by enchantment. Still moon by hand tactics. Sun on the second, king of Assyria in the eighth century BC, asserted that he had conquered the area stretching from Mid-Yassin, shore of the Salt Sea, as far as the border of Still Moon. The name Salt Sea has survived to this day as a Hebrew name for the Dead Sea, another confirmation that Still Moon led in proximity to the Dead Sea. Several Assyrian kings mentioned the brook Tamim as a geographic landmark on their expeditions to Egypt. Sargon II noted the brook after describing the conquest of Ashdod, the Philistine city on the Mediterranean coast. As Arhadon, who ruled somewhat later, boasted nothing and trod upon Arzad, the 
go to these places and put our pistols to exchange with some Ankanaya, King of Pranuri, I am sorry, Britain. The name Book of Egypt is identical to the biblical name for the large and extensive Sinai Wadi, shallow river that runs the Jordan and the Mediterranean region, now called Wadi El Ari. After Barakal, who followed Esarhaddon and the Quran to Syria, claimed that he laid his yoke as overlord Kish in Tyre, which is in the upper sea, the lower sea, the Red Sea. In all instances, the geography and topography of Kilmoli fully match the Sinai Peninsula. Except for annual variations, the peninsula's climate in historical times is believed to have been the same as nowadays, and the regular rainy season lasted from October through May. The rest of the year is completely dry. The meager rainfall qualifies the whole of Sinai to be defined as a desert less than 10 inches of rainfall per annum. Yet the high granite peaks at the south are round and rifted, and in the northern coast the strength of water level is only a few feet below the ground. This is because most of the peninsula are the wadi. In the south, the waters of the swift and short rainforest drain off either eastward to the Gulf of Oman, Gulf of Suez. It is there that most of the picturesque canyon-like waters flourishing oases are found. But the bulk of the peninsula's rainwater is drained northward to the Mediterranean Sea via the extensive Wadi Al-Ari and its myriad tributaries that look on a map as the blood vessels of a giant heart. In this part of the Sinai, the depths of the wadis that make up this network may extend three inches to a few feet. The ridge can be beaten to a mile and more after a sizable rain. Even in the rainy season, the rainfall pattern is totally erratic. Sudden downpours alternate with long dry spells. An assumption of plentiful water during the season or in its immediate aftermath seems to thus be very misleading. Since much has happened to the Israelites as they left Egypt in mid-April and entered the Sinai wilderness a few weeks later, finding themselves without the expected waters, it required the intervention of the Lord's heart. Moses would strike the rock for water. The Bedouin, local nomads, as other people travelers of the Sinai, can duplicate the miracles, push the soil, making up the water's better crops. The secret is that in many places the rocky bed lies above a layer of clay soil that captures the water as it trickles through the rock. With knowledge and luck, a little digging in a completely dry wadi bed uncovers water only a few feet below the surface. Was this nomad art the great miracle performed by the Lord? Recent discoveries in the Sinai throw a new light on the subject. The Israeli hydrologists associated with the wise men of the Jewish Sinai have discovered that parts of the Sahara Desert and some deserts in Nubia share its fossil water, the remains of prehistoric lakes from another geological era under the central Sinai, a vast underground reservoir with enough water has been estimated to suffice for a population as large as Israel for almost 100 years, and extends to some 6,000 square miles in a wide belt that begins near the Suez Canal, which is under Israel's arid Negev. Though lying on the average some 3,000 feet over the rocky ground, the water is subarctic, and 
rises by its own pressure to about 1,000 kilograms. It keeps getting experimental drillings into oil and extraction of the northern plains of Kwajalein. As Kwajalein said, this water is dangerous. Water drilling is confirmed with incredible sight. Above ground, arid wilderness below is an easy reach of water drilling in combination of lake and fuel sparkling water. Open Netherlands supports space-based technology and innovation technology. Small boats traveled on a river water in a dry waterbed. The water that crossed the river after Moses had struck the rock had been diluted by the water. Taken by hand with facts, the drifter performed the miracles in Egypt. The Lord told Moses, you will see me standing upon a certain rock. Strike that rock with the staff, and there shall come out of it water. The people shall drink enough water for a multitude of people and their livestock. So that the greatness of Yahweh be known, Moses was to take with him to the site and witnesses. And the miracle took place before the eyes of the elders of Israel. A Sumerian tale concerning Shomer relates an almost identical event. It is a tale of bad times caused by a shortage of water. Crops withered, cattle were not fed, animals went thirsty, and people fell silent. Sites for Shomer, Ulur, and Shad complained to the father angel, The city which thou hast given, Shomer, the city thou hast given, has not waters of the river, unbathed is the maiden, no sparkling water is poured in the city. Studying the problem, Shomer concluded that the only solution would be to bring up subterranean water. The depth must have been greater than what could be obtained by digging as usual well. So Moses conceived a plan whereby the layers of rock would be penetrated by a missile fired from the sky. Father Angel answered him similar to Jonah, that divine issue is positioning from the sky. A missile that can be tightly affixed to his breast, and from high directed toward the earth. From the source that issues earth's waters, that can bring these deep waters from the earth. So instructed, Abram Samaria. Proceed to bring up water from subterranean sources. Moses, positioning himself in the sky, a missile tightly tied to his breast, from high directed it toward the earth. He let go of his missile from high in the sky, threw the crystal stone, and brought up water from the source that issues earth's waters and draws earth's deep waters from the earth. Put a missile shot from the sky to face the earth and cause capable water to come up. Anticipating the incredulity of his readers, Jameson's tribe affirmed at the world's end. Verily, it was so. The miracle, the text went on, did work. Shomun became a land of farmers and fields and farms which bear grain. And Shomun City became fourth city of the land, a sign of praise and glory to the earth. The parallels between Shomun and Sinai are thus doubly affirmed. First, the existence of the subterranean water reservoir below the rocky surface. Secondly, the presence of Ibu Shaman, the faithful commander, in the proximity. The Sinai Peninsula can also account for all the products for which Shomun was renowned. Shomun was a source of gemstones, that is, the brilliant lapidary jewels, which the Sumerians cherished. It is an established fact that the pharaohs of Egypt obtained a blue-green gemstone turquoise, as well as a blue-green mineral, malachite, from the southwestern parts of the Sinai. 
glittering and circular, reminding Larry of Marisol's body, my daughter, the body of Sarah. There, tunnels were cut into the rocky sides of the Wadi Canyon, and miners went there to stabilize the turquoise. Later on, mining also took place at a site now known as Sarah de Calcarine. It was an inscription dating back to the third dynasty had been found at Wadi Nadara, and it is believed that it was then that the Egyptians began to station garrisons and occupy the mines on a continuing basis. Archaeological discoveries, as well as the pictures of first pharaohs and deceased and captured Asiatic nomads, convinced scholars that at first the Egyptians only raided mines developed earlier by Semitic tribesmen. These could be Egyptian names of circles, after which they called the Sinai, the land of Mosca. Stems from the Semitic verb meaning to mine, to extract by cutting. These mining areas were in the domain of the god of Hathor, who was known both as Lady of Sinai and Lady of Mosca. The great goddess of older times, one of the early sky gods of the Egyptians, she was nicknamed by them the Cow, was depicted with cow horns. Her name, Hathor, spelled hieroglyphically by drawing a cowhorn with a loose closure, has been interpreted by scholars to mean House of Horus, but it literally meant falcon tower, which affirms our conclusions regarding the location and functions of the land of the Mithras. Please see figure 106 and figure 7 in the bonus PDF, Representations of Mounting. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Turquoise was obtained from the Sinai Peninsula before the 4th millennium BC in one of the world's first important hard rock mining operations. At that time, the Sumerian civilization was only beginning to stir, and the Egyptian one was only a millennium away. Since then, sort of organized the mining activities. The Egyptians said it was Thoth, the god of sciences, convinced that during the assignment of Sinai to Hathor, the Egyptians emulated Sumerian traditions. According to Sumerian texts, the god who organized the mining operations of the Assyrian kings was Enki, the god of knowledge. So Muru, the text protector, was allotted in pre-Diluvian times to the Enlil god, a picture of Enki and Enlil. In her youth, she was a smashing beauty, the chief nurse of the Mithras. But in her old age, she was nicknamed the Cow, and as the goddess of the gate cow, was depicted with cow's horns. Similarities between her and Hathor, and the analogies between their domains, is quite the obvious to require elaboration. A depiction of the cow can be found in the bonus PDF under figure 107. The Sinai was also a major source of copper, and the evidence here is that the Egyptians relied mostly on raiding expeditions to obtain it. To do this, they had to penetrate deeper into the peninsula, and Pharaoh of the 12th dynasty, the time of Abraham, left up these comments and did this. Reaching the boundaries of foreign lands Reaching the limits of the unknown, he boasted that his men lost not a single case of this new treaty. Recent explorations, the scientists that would say the scientists, found ample evidence showing that during the times of the early kingdom of Egypt and the third millennium BC, Sinai was densely inhabited by Semitic 
apartment smelting and cobwebs lining the fire. We were to exhibit a penetration of pyrotic expositions into their territories. We should establish the existence of a fairly large industrial metallurgical enterprise. There are copper mines, miners camps, and copper smelting installations spread from the western part of southern Shanghai to as far east as Yilan, at the head of the Gulf of Akaba. Yilan, known in Old Testament times as Etian Yilki, was indeed a Pittsburgh of the ancient world. Some 20 years ago, Nelson Bluff uncovered at Kiryat, just north of Yilan, King Solomon's copper mine. The ores were taken to Etian Yilki, where they were smelted and refined in one of the largest, if not the largest, of metallurgical centers in the region in ancient times. The archaeological evidence once again ties in with the biblical and Mesopotamian texts. Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, boasted that upon Peniah, king of Shomeri, I imposed curses. The Edomites are mentioned in the Old Testament as inhabitants of the southern Sinai. Their name literally meant king, metallurgist. The tribe into which Moses married when he escaped from Egypt into the Sinai was that of the Elam. Archie Ford pointed out that the biblical term king, Nathan, stems from the Sumerian king, Sakan. Pharaoh Ramses III, who reigned in the century following the Exodus, recorded his invasion of these copper pit dwellings and the plundering of the metallurgical center of Kinyahilah had destroyed the people's tools, the sides of the statues, had plundered their tents, their people's possessions, their cattle likewise, without number. They were pinioned and brought as captives, and tortured and beaten, and gave them to the gods, and slaves into their temples, and set forth my man to the ancient temples, the great copper mines which are in that place. Their galleys carried them, others on a land journey or upon their asses. It is not the first occasion which the reign of the Pharaohs began. The mines were found abounding in copper. It was loaded by 10,000 into the galleys. They were sent forward to Egypt and arrived safely. It was carried and made into workmen under the proudest falcons and many bars of copper, a hundred thousand being the color of gold and three refinements. I allowed all the people to see them and wondered. It was to spend the rest of his life in the mines of Shilmu that the God had set him to do for years. And so it was that Gilgamesh conceived of the plan to charter a ship in Egypt and take his comrade along. The land of mines and the land of mystery were both parts of the same dilemma. Our identification matches them in every cave I see. Before we continue with our reconstruction of the story of the Cave of Gilgamesh, it is important to buttress our conclusion that Shilmuli was the Sumerian name for the Sinai Peninsula. This is not what scholars have held until now, and we should analyze their contrary views and show why they have them wrong. The persistent school of thought, one of the early advocates of the Cave formula, identified Shilmuli, sometimes transcribed as Gilgamesh, as the island of Bahrain, the Persian Gulf. This view relies most heavily on the inscription by Sargon II of Assyria, wherein he asserted that among the kings came from Britain was Nuseri, king of Gilmuli, who 
his abode and situated like a prison, where he double hours arrest, and makes such a plea with the sun rising. Simpson has taken to mean that Kilmeade was not an enemy, and the scholars who hold this view identify the scene with the sun rising as the Persian Gulf. They then end up with Bahrain as the anchor. There are several flaws in this interpretation. First, it could well be that the only capital city of Kilmeade was Oman off Deir Island. The text leaves no doubt that there was a land Kilmeade and a Kilmeade city. Secondly, other Assyrian inscriptions which describe cities as being in the midst of the sea apply the coastal city and the bay as common waters, but not on an island, as, for instance, Arvad on the Mediterranean coast. Then, if the sea where the sun rises in the basin reached the Mesopotamia, the Persian Gulf does not qualify, since it lies to the south, not to the east of Mesopotamia. Also, Bahrain lies too close to Mesopotamia to account for 30 double hours of sailing. It is situated some 300 miles south of the Mesopotamian Gulf Shore. That's 16 hours of sailing, even on a leisurely day, a distance many times greater could be covered. Another major problem arising from a Bahrain-Kilmeade-like interpretation concerns the product for which Kilmeade was renowned. Even in the days of Gilgamesh, not all of the land in Kilmeade was a restricted area. There was a part on the east where Simpson's men toiled in the dark and dusty mines, digging out the copper and gemstones for which Kilmeade was famed. But long associated with scenery, culture, and trade, Kilmoon supplied it with certain desired pieces of wood and its agricultural areas, such as what we above mentioned in the Mencignus Creek of Eden Waters, provided the ancient world with highly prized onions and dates. Bahrain had one of these effective and ordinary dates. So to circumvent the problem, the pro-Bahrain school has developed a complex answer. Jeffrey Biddy others of like mind suggest that Bahrain was a transshipment point. The products and ingredients came from some other more distant land, but the ships which carried these goods did not go all the way to Cuba. They stopped and unloaded their goods in Bahrain, where the famous merchants and steamers took them up to the final haul to the Sumerian port, so that when the Sumerian scribes wrote down where the goods come from, as the story goes, he wrote down Gilmaid, meaning Bahrain, and that one of his ships had sailed great distances, failed to sail the path in Mesopotamia, and instead go to the extra trouble and cost of offloading at Bahrain. Also, the city where it stands in direct contradiction to specific statements by rulers of Sumer and Akkad, that the ships of Gilmaid, among ships from other lands, Anchored at their ports of Italy. Hernandi, the king of Lagab, some two centuries after Gilgamesh was king of neighboring rulers, claimed that the ships of Kilmaid brought him wood and food. He recognized the name Kilmaid in his inscriptions by the pictograph of the Nephilim. Sargon, the first ruler of Akkad, boasted that at the wharf of Akkad he made war ships from Malula, ships from Dragon, and ships from Kilmaid. Pictographs can be found in the burning PDF of the figure 106.
Clearly, then, the ship dropped the product. Joe Moon traced the Mesopotamian source problem as logic and economic resistance. Likewise, the Eastern text is direct exports from Mesopotamia to Joe Moon. One inscription records the shipment of wheat, cheese, and smelled barley from Lagash to Joe Moon, circa 2500 BC. No trans One of the leading opponents of the Bahrain dealers, Samuel M. Kramer, stressed the fact that the Mesopotamian text described it as a distant land, reachable not without great descriptions do not match the place by reachable objects usually surround the unquiet waters of the Persian Gulf. He also attached great importance to the fact that the various Mesopotamian texts placed full moon near streams and bodies of water, rather than rills or in a single sea. The Akkadian texts located full moon do not seem to know that at the mouth of the free flowing waters where two bodies of water begin. Cited by yet another statement, which said that Phil Moon was the land of the sun diamond, Kramer concluded first that Phil Moon was a land and not an island, and secondly that it must have been located in the Eastern Kingdom, for it is in the east of the sun rising. If the imagery seen by the term two bodies of water means he could come up only with a southeastern point, like the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean, is it that or somewhere near the Indus River that he suggested? Kramer's own hesitation stems from the well-known fact that numerous Sumerian and Akkadian texts listing countries and people do not mention Phil Moon in association with thus the two lands of Elam or Iraqa. Instead, they lump together as lands situated next to each other. Maluha in India, Ethiopia, Maya in Egypt, and Phil Moon. Proximity between Egypt and Maya and Phil Moon is spelled out at the end of the ancient and Menhurtag text, where the appointment of Nindula as Lord of Magan, or of Engad as Lord of Phil Moon, obtains the blessing of the two gods. It is also evident from a remarkable text written at the head of biography of Enki, which describes his activities after the deluge, assisting mankind in establishing civilization. Again, Phil Moon is listed next to Magan and Malua, the lands of Magan and Phil Moon, respectively. I and the stories of Phil Moon both have the text. Nor did the Magan go sky high, enjoying the boat of Malua, transferred to Moses and Satan. In view of this proximity of Phil Moon to Egypt, what about the statement that Phil Moon was where the sun rises, meaning, Dr. Stein, east of Sumer, and not westward? The simple answer is that the texts do not make that statement at all. They do not say where the sun rises. They state where Sanak and Ham discovered the land. Phil Moon was not at all near Egypt, but it certainly was the place where Ishu Sanak, the god who collects the symbols of the sun and not the sun itself, ascended skyward in his rocket sphere. The words of the Gilgamesh epic are quite clear. At the mountain of Maki, Elam, whereby Gen descends to Elam, as they depart and come in, rocket men guard its gates and watch over the land and the assembled ancient gods. That indeed was the place where Zeus, Dia Sutra, had been taken. In the land of the crossing, this mountainous full moon, the place where Sanak descends, Ishu 
cause him to glad. And so it was that Gilgamesh, denied permission to mount his chariot, and seeking therefore only to converse with his ancestors, the Akutra, set his steps to Mount Matu, namely Mount Mimosa, on the eastern Sinai Peninsula. Modern botanists have been amazed by the variety of the Peninsula's flora, finding more than a thousand species of plants, many unique to the Sinai, varying from tall trees to tiny shrubs, where there is water, as in oases, or below the surface of the coastal sandhill, or in the salt of the water. These trees and shrubs grow with an impressive persistence, having adapted themselves to the particular climate and hydrography of the Sinai. The Sinai's northeastern pockets, as well as what is called the Sikhs, or onions, are named for the varieties of long leaves and scallions. There's evidence to the court from the Sikh delicacy of fish tagilla. Ashkenaz and Mediterranean pepper, just north of the Tripoli Sea. One of the trees that adapted itself to Sinai's unique circumstances is the acacia, which accommodates its high transpiration rate by growing only in the water's edge, where it exploits the tropical heat moisture down to many feet. As a result, the tree can live for almost 20 years without rain. It is a tree whose timber is as fine as wood according to DNA testing. Oriara and other components of the tabernacle were made of this wood, which would have well served as the fine wood which contains the tumor important for their temple. An ever-present sight of the Sinai are the tamarisk, wood-like trees which cling to the water surface year-round, for their roots reach down to the subsurface moisture, and they can grow even where the water is saline and brushy. After especially rainy winters, the tamarisk shrubs fill up with a deep, granular white substance, which reduces to become small insects that live on the tamarisk. The Bedouin call the white principally named manis, which is very dense. The trees which fill New England mostly are sacred. The pity, however, was that Jacob had. It is still the Sinai's most important tree for synopsis, needing minimal cultivation. Provides the Bedouin with herbage. Its tall kernels are fed to camels and goats. The trunk is used for girding and for fuel. The branches for fishing, the fibers for ropes and weaving. We know from Mesopotamian records that these dates were also exported from Hill Lilies in antiquity. The dates were so large and juicy that recipes for meals of the gods ruled, including Gilgamesh specified that every day of the year, before daily noon, 108 measures of ordinary grain, 10 gates of the land of full moon, among the fruits of labor, shall be offered to the deity. The nearest and most ancient town of land use in Sinan and Mesopotamia was Jericho, which figures in Esoteric Jericho, the city of David. The date palm, or palm, has been adopted as a symbol of near Eastern religion, i.e. an ancient concept of man and his God. The biblical psalmist promised that the righteous of the date palm shall flourish. The prophet Ezekiel, in his vision of the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem, saw it decorated with alternating cherubim and date palms, so that a date palm was between a cherub and a cherub, and between a cherub and a blank. 
the time among the exiles, between the Babylonian temples that are drawn over against the Jordan, Ezekiel was well acquainted with the Mesopotamian depictions of the cherubim and great flying beasts. That's from the Human Figure 189, found in the Bonus Bibliography. Alongside the winged spirit, the emblem of the twelfth planet, the symbol most widely depicted by all the ancient nations, was the tree of life. Marching in Sir Alta Orion, stealing from Mayfell, as shown back in 1912 that the Greek iron limb columns happening, as well as Egyptian ones, were in fact stylizations of the tree of life in the shape of a shaped man, and confirmed earlier suggestions that the fruit of life had legend and entertaining the assumption that this was the eating of the big fruit. We find the theme of the great man as the symbol of life carried on even in Muslim tradition, as in the decorations of Cairo's Grand Mosque. Examples of this can be found in the bonus PDF under Figure 189. Many major studies have shown that Abul, that Levin, Briggs, that Husserl, Appendix of Dema, and the tree and the tree of life, ancient Near Eastern religions like Neo-Zagreus, show that the concept of such a tree, growing in the abode of the gods, has spread from the Near East all over and has become a tenet of all religions everywhere. The source of all these depictions and beliefs is Sumerian records of the land of the living. Still named, you know, old woman, Zegla, I am an old woman, or old man, Zegla, I am an old man. The Sumerian masters of bird flying called the land of the living still living. Yet this name could also mean land of living, or sin, also like life. The tree of life in Sumerian was Ishtu. What is meant a man-made, a manufactured object. But that Ishtu could also mean the creation, true life, of what is living. In art, too, we find the evil men sometimes saluted not the great man, as we see in figure 16 of the Bonus PDF. Going in hiking further, as we find that in Greek religious art, the Abbala is associated with the great man. An ancient Greek depiction of Delphi shows that the Abbala's replica that was erected outside Apollo's temple was set up next to a great man. Since no such tree could grow in Greece, it was an artificial tree made, as we see here, of bronze. The association of the Impalas with the Great Man must have been a matter of basic symbolism, for these depictions were repeated also in respect to other Greek mythology centers. The proximity of the Impalas and the Great Man is illustrated in the Doris PDF under Figure 111. We have found earlier that the Impalas served as a link between Greeks, Egyptians, Nubians, and Sinanite oracle centers, and the Dua. Now we find this shown in plenty, linked to the great man, the tree and the land of living. Indeed, Sumerian texts accompanying depictions of the cherubim included the following incantation, the dark brown tree of Enki, holding no man, the tree that tells the count, great heavensward weapon, I'm holding my hand, the palm tree, great tree of oracles, I'm holding my hand. A Mesopotamian depiction shows a god, holding up in his hand this palm tree, great tree of oracles. He is granting this tree of life to sing at the place of the four gods. We have already come upon this relic in Egyptian texts and depictions. So 
before God to support Cardinal Point, locally quite clearly, to heaven in the Via. We have also seen that the Sumerian gateway to heaven was marked by the gate columns. Examples of the gate column in proximity to the god can be found in the bonus PDF on the Triple One Religion Files, entries in Section 2. And we have no more doubt that the target of the ancient search for immortality was, of course, somewhere in Sinai Peninsula. Somewhere in Sinai Peninsula, the Nephilim had established their post-Diluvian space force. Somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, with their God's blessing, could approach a certain mountain, Nahum, hill back, the guardian birdmen ordered Alexander, to the land on which you stand belongs to God alone. Nahum, do not come nearer, the Lord called out to Moses, for the place whereon thou standest is sacred ground. There evil men challenged Gilgamesh before the sun rose, fully to realize he was no mere mortal. Sumerians called this mountain in Keltic, Mount Matu, which the Mount of the Supreme God. The tales of Alexander named it Mount Beautiful, Mount Moses. Its identical nature and function, coupled with its identical name, suggests that in all instances it was the same mountain that was the destination landmark. It thus seems that the answer to the question, where in the peninsula was the gateway, is right at hand not the Mount of the Exodus, Mount Sinai, clearly marked on maps in the peninsula, the tallest peak among the high granite mountains of southern Sinai. The Israelite Exodus from Egypt has been commemorated each year for the past 33 centuries by the celebration of the Passover. The historical and religious records of the Hebrews are replete with references to the Exodus, the wanderings in the wilderness, the covenant with Mount Sinai, have been constantly reminded of the Siyatah, when the whole nation of Israel had seen the Lord Yahweh alight in his glory upon the sacred mount, that its location was de-emphasized, thus the text was made of what the plaintiff calls himself. There is no recorded instance in the Bible of anyone even trying to say a return visit to Mount Sinai, with one exception, the prophet Elijah. Some four centuries after the Exodus, this speaks for his life after having slain the priests of God on Mount Carmel, setting his course for the mountain Sinai. He lost his way in the desert. An angel of the Lord revived him and placed him in a cave in the mountain. Nowadays, it would seem, one needs no guiding angel to find Mount Sinai. Modern pilgrims have done for centuries past. Checked his course at the monastery of Santa Caterina, so named after the martyr Catherine of Egypt, whose body in Egypt perished in her life, wearing her mantle. After an overnight stay at daybreak, the pilgrims began to cross the regal Nephi, Mount Moses, Nazareth. It is the southern peak of a two-mile mountain, rising south of the monastery. A tradition of Mount Sinai, with which the theophanies and the law-keeping are associated. An image of the monastery of Santa Caterina and Mount found in the bonus PDF under figure 113 and figure 114 respectively. A crime for that piece of land, Ithabos, involving an ascent of some 2,500 feet. One path is by way of some 4,000 steps laid out by the monks along the western slopes of the mountain. 
many years, and it's been several while he's over, his name's in the Valley of the Cinnamon Mountains, and a mountain approaches and then slightly gets him, the father-in-law of Moses, and rises gradually along the eastern flank, and collects the mountain with the last 750 steps of the chosen path. It was at that intersection, according to the Martian tradition, that Elijah encountered the Lord. Christian chapel and the Muslim shrine, both small and crudely built, mark the spot where the tablets of the law were given to Moses. A cave nearby is revealed as the cleft in the rock, wherein the Lord placed Moses as his hot spot, as related in Exodus chapter 32, verse 24. A well along the descent route is identified as the well from which Moses watered the flock of his father-in-law. Every possible event relating to the Holy Land is thus assigned by the Muslim tradition a definite spot in Ethan Gable Musa and its surroundings. From the Ethan Gable Musa, one can see some of the other peaks which make up the granite heartland, of which this mouth is another. Surprisingly, it appears to be lower than many of its neighbors. Indeed, in support of the St. Catherine legend, the monks have put up a sign in the main building which proclaims altitude 5,012 feet, point is 9,750 feet, Santa Catherine Mountain, 8,576 feet. As one is convinced that Mount Catherine is indeed the higher one, in fact the highest in the peninsula, and thus rightly chosen by the angels to hide the saint's body thereon, one is also disappointed that contrary to long-held beliefs, God had brought the children of Israel to this forbidding area to impress upon them his might and his law, not from the falling stone. But God did strike them down. In 1809, the Swiss scholar Johann Ludwig Burkhardt arrived in the Near East with the half of the British Association for Promoting the Discovery of the Imperial Continental Shelf. Studying Arabic and Muslim customs, he put a turban on his head of an Arab and changed his name to Ibrahim Ibn Abd Allah, Abraham, the son of Allah, the Great. Through the bust, it took a traveling heart hitherto forbidden to the infidels, discovering ancient Egyptian customs about the skin bag and at the Megosian rock city of Petra, Sanskrit. On April 15, 1816, he set out on camelback from the town of Suez at the head of the Gulf of goal was to retrace the route of the Exodus, and thereby to establish the true identity of Mount Sinai, following the presumed route taken by Moses. He traveled south along the western coast of the peninsula. There, the mountains begin some 10 to 20 miles away from the coast, being a desolate place of plain, cut here and there by waters and a couple of hot springs, including one favored by the Pharaoh. As he went south, Burkhardt noted the geography, topography, and description of the region. He compared conditions by saying that the descriptions and names of the stations of the Exodus, as mentioned in the Bible, where the limestone plateau ends, Moses has provided a sandy belt, which separates the plateau from a belt of Nubian sandstone, serving as a trough for Sinai and Abel. There, Burkhardt turned inland, and after a while set his course southward into the granite heartland, reaching the Kafein Monastery from the north, as today is named after him. From 
of its observations are in the lingering and key area and produced excellent data points. Tom cites Jesus, Stephen Love, Bronson Ducca, and Manuel Sidley for the sculpture of Tom Santinopoulos. Befriending the Aryan veteran, they invited him to the annual feast in honor of St. Joseph. They called him El Tigre, the Ever-Giver. Urquhart attended Mount Musa and Catherine and toured the area extensively. He was especially fascinated by Mount Ain Kumar, a mere 180 feet short from Mount St. Catherine, which rises somewhat southwest of the foot of Catherine Gate. From an instrument, its top dazzled in the sun with the most brilliant white color. This is for an unusual infusion of particles of mica in the granite rocks, forming a striking contrast with the blackened surface of the slate and the red granite of the mountain's lower part and the surrounding area. The chief also had the distinction of offering an unobstructed view of both the Gulf of Suez, El Khor, Gulf of Sicily, Lebanon, and the Gulf of Aqaba, Gulf of Iraq. Burkhart found it mentioned in the Covenant's record that in Kumar proved to be a principal location of monastic settlement. In the 15th century, caravans of asses laden with corn and other provisions passed by this place regularly from the Covenant to El Khor, for this is the nearest road to that harbor. His way back was via Wadi Shiva, a distillation in Argentine finance, where the Wadi leaves the mountain Burkhart climbed up a magnificent mountain, rising over 6,800 feet, Mount Herbert, named the Paulson Peninsula. There he found remains inscribed with Herbert's inscription. Additional research established that the main monastic center in China through most of the century was at Wadi Shiva, near Herbert, and not at St. Catherine. When Burkhart published his findings, his conclusions and biblical words. The true Mount Sinai, he stated, was not Mount Musa, but Mount Herbert. Inspired by Burkhart's writings in the French account Beyond de Labore, toward the Sinai in 1826 and 1828, his main contributions to knowledge of the area were his fine maps and drawings. He was followed in 1839 by the Scottish artist David Rogers with magnificent drawings wherein he embellished accuracy with some imaginative learning, aroused great interest in an era before photography. The next major journey to China was undertaken by the American Edward Robinson, together with Eli Smith. Like Burkhart, they left Suez City on camelback, armed with this book and their laborious maps. It took them 13 early spring days to reach St. Catherine. There, Robinson gave the monks and legends a thorough going examination. He found out that at Shiva, there indeed was a superior monastic community, sometimes led by sole bishops, to which Catherine and several other monastic communities in southern China were subordinate, so that tradition must have placed greater emphasis on Shiva. In the tales and documents, he discovered that Mount Musa and Catherine were of no Christian consequence in the early 15th century and that Catherine's supremacy developed only in the 17th century when the other unfortified monastic communities fell prey to invaders and marauders. Testing local Arab traditions, he found that the biblical names Sinai and Horeb were totally unknown to the local Bedouins, 
Hoskins caught her in love and began to apply these names to searching up. What were cards for? Barbara had found a problem with the rooms by which her card had to 